Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 17 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 17 I now fell into a regular routine of apprenticeship life, which was varied, beyond the limits of the village and the marshes, by no more remarkable circumstance than the arrival of my birthday and my paying another visit to Miss Havisham. I found Miss Sarah Pocket still on duty at the gate. I found Miss Havisham, just as I had left her, and she spoke of Estella in the very same way, if not in the very same words. The interview lasted but a few minutes, and she gave me a guinea when I was going, and told me to come again on my next birthday. I may mention at once that this became an annual custom. I tried to decline taking the guinea on the first occasion, but with no better effect than causing her to ask me very angrily if I expected more. Then, and after that, I took it. So unchanging was the dull old house, the yellow light in the darkened room, the faded spectre in the chair by the dressing-table glass, that I felt as if the stopping of the clocks had stopped time in that mysterious place and, while I and everything else outside it grew older, it stood still. Daylight never entered the house as to my thoughts and remembrances of it, any more than as to the actual fact. It bewildered me, and under its influence I continued at heart to hate my trade and to be ashamed of home. Imperceptibly I became conscious of a change in Biddy, however. Her shoes came up at the heel, her hair grew bright and neat, her hands were always clean. She was not beautiful, she was common, and could not be like Estella, but she was pleasant and wholesome and sweet-tempered. She had not been with us more than a year. I remember her being newly out of mourning at the time it struck me, when I observed to myself one evening that she had curiously thoughtful and attentive eyes, eyes that were very pretty and very good. It came of my lifting up my own eyes from a task I was poring at, writing some passages from a book, to improve myself in two ways at once, by a sort of stratagem, and seeing Biddy, observant of what I was about. I laid down my pen, and Biddy stopped in her needlework, without laying it down. "'Biddy,' said I, "'how do you manage it? Either I am very stupid, or you are very clever.' "'What is it that I manage? I don't know,' returned Biddy, smiling. She managed our whole domestic life, and wonderfully too. But I did not mean that, though that made what I did mean more surprising. "'How do you manage, Biddy?' said I. "'To learn everything that I learn, and always to keep up with me.' I was beginning to be rather vain of my knowledge, for I spent my birthday guineas on it and set aside the greater part of my pocket-money for similar investment, 
though I have no doubt now that the little I knew was extremely dear at the price. "'I might as well ask you,' said Biddy, "'how you manage.' "'No, because when I come in from the forge of a night, any one can see me turning to at it. But you never turn to at it, Biddy.' "'I suppose I must catch it, like a cough,' said Biddy quietly, and went on with her sewing. Pursuing my idea, as I leaned back in my wooden chair, and looked at Biddy sewing away with her head on one side, I began to think her rather an extraordinary girl. For, I call to mind now, that she was equally accomplished in the terms of our trade, and the names of our different sorts of work, and our various tools. In short, whatever I knew, Biddy knew. Theoretically, she was already as good a blacksmith as I, or better. "'You are one of those, Biddy,' said I, "'who make the most of every chance. You never had a chance before you came here, and see how improved you are.' Biddy looked at me for an instant, and went on with her sewing. "'I was your first teacher, though, wasn't I?' said she, as she sewed. "'Biddy!' I exclaimed in amazement. "'Why are you crying?' "'No, I'm not.' said Biddy, looking up and laughing. <laughs> what, what put that into your head? What could have put it in my head, but the glistening of a tear as it dropped on her work? I sat silent, recalling what a drudge she had been, until Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt successfully overcame that bad habit of living, so highly desirable to be got rid of by some people. I recalled the hopeless circumstance by which she had been surrounded in the miserable little shop, and the miserable little noisy evening school, with that miserable old bundle of incompetence, always to be dragged and shouldered. I reflected that even in those untoward times, there must have been latent in Biddy what was now developing, for, in my first uneasiness and discontent, I had turned to her for help, as a matter of course. Biddy sat quietly sewing, shedding no more tears, and while I looked at her, and thought about it all, it occurred to me that perhaps I had not been sufficiently grateful to Biddy. I might have been too reserved, and should have patronised her more, though I did not use that precise word in my meditations, with my confidence. "'Yes, Biddy,' I observed, when I had done turning it over. "'You were my first teacher, and that at a time when we little thought of ever being together like this in the kitchen.' "'Ah, poor thing,' replied Biddy. It was like her self-forgetfulness to transfer the remark to my sister, and to get up and be busy about her, making her more comfortable. "'That's sadly true.' "'Well,' said I, "'we must talk together a little more, as we used to do. And I must consult you a little more, as I used to do. Let us have a quiet walk on the marshes next Sunday, Biddy, and a long chat.' My sister was never left alone now, but Joe more than readily undertook the care of her on that Sunday afternoon, and Biddy and I went out together. It was summer-time, and lovely weather. When we had passed the village and the church and the churchyard, and were out on the marshes, and began to see the sails of the ships as they sailed on, I began to combine Miss Havisham and Estella with the prospect in my usual way. 
when we came to the riverside and sat down on the bank, with the water rippling at our feet, making it all more quiet than it would have been without that sound, I resolved that it was a good time and place for the admission of Biddy into my inner confidence. "'Biddy,' said I, after binding her to secrecy, "'I want to be a gentleman.' "'Oh, I wouldn't, if I was you,' she returned. "'I don't think it would answer.' "'Biddy,' said I, with some severity, "'I have particular reasons for wanting to be a gentleman.' "'You know best, Pip. But don't you think you're happier as you are?' "'Biddy!' I exclaimed impatiently. "'I am not at all happy as I am. I'm disgusted with my calling and with my life. I've never taken to either since I was bound. Don't be absurd.' "'Was I absurd?' said Biddy, quietly raising her eyebrows. "'I'm sorry for that. I didn't mean to be. I only want you to do well and to be comfortable.' "'Well, then, understand, once for all, that I never shall or can be comfortable, or anything but miserable. There, Biddy, unless I can lead a very different sort of life from the life I lead now.' "'That's a pity,' said Biddy, shaking her head with a sorrowful air. Now, I, too, had so often thought it a pity, that, in the singular kind of quarrel with myself, which I was always carrying on, I was half inclined to shed tears of vexation and distress, when Biddy gave utterance to her sentiment, and my own. I told her she was right, and I knew it was much to be regretted, but still it was not to be helped. "'If I could have settled down,' I said to Biddy, plucking up the short grass within reach, much as I had once upon a time pulled my feelings out of my hair, and kicked them into the brewery wall, "'if I could have settled down,' and be but half as fond as the forge as I was when I was little. I knew it would have been much better for me. You and I and Joe would have wanted nothing then, and Joe and I would perhaps have gone partners when I was out of time, and I might even have grown up to keep company with you, and we might have sat on this very bank on a fine Sunday. Quite different people. I should have been good enough for you, shouldn't I, Biddy?' Biddy sighed as she looked at the ship sailing on, and returned for answer, "'Yes, I'm not over-particular.' It scarcely sounded flattering, but I knew she meant well. "'Instead of that,' said I, plucking up more grass and chewing a blade or two, "'see how I am going on, dissatisfied and uncomfortable, and, and, and what would it signify to me, being coarse and common, if nobody had told me so?' Biddy turned her face suddenly towards mine, and looked far more attentively at me than she had looked at the sailing-ships. "'It was neither a very true nor a very polite thing to say,' she remarked, directing her eyes to the ships again. "'Who said it?' I was disconcerted, for I had broken away without quite seeing where I was going to. It was not to be shuffled off now, however, and I answered. "'The beautiful young lady at Miss Havisham's, and she's more beautiful than anybody ever was, and I admire her dreadfully, and I want to be a gentleman on her account." Having made this lunatic confession, I began to throw my torn-up grass into the river, as if I had some thoughts of following it. "'Do you want to be a gentleman, to spite her, or to gain her over?' 
Biddy quietly asked me after a pause. "'I don't know,' I moodily answered. "'Because, if it is to spite her,' Biddy pursued, "'I should think—but you know best. That might be better and more independently done, by caring nothing for her words. And if it is to gain her over, I should think—but you know best. She was not worth gaining over.' Exactly what I myself had thought many times, exactly what was perfectly manifest to me at the moment. But how could I, a poor dazed village lad, avoid that wonderful inconsistency into which the best and wisest of men fall every day? It may be all quite true, said I to Biddy, but I admire her dreadfully. In short, I turned over on my face when I came to that and got a good grasp on the hair on each side of my head, and wrenched it well, all the while knowing the madness of my heart to be so very mad and misplaced, that I was quite conscious it would have served my face right if I had lifted it up by my hair and knocked it against the pebbles as a punishment for belonging to such an idiot. Biddy was the wisest of girls, and she tried to reason no more with me. She put her hand, which was a comfortable hand, though roughened by work, upon my hands, one after another, and gently took them out of my hair. Then she softly patted my shoulder in a soothing way, while with my face upon my sleeve I cried a little, exactly as I had done in the brewery yard, and felt vaguely convinced that I was very much ill-used by somebody, or by everybody, I can't say which. "'I am glad of one thing,' said Biddy and that is, that you have felt you could give me your confidence, Pip. And I am glad of another thing, and that is, that of course you know you may depend upon my keeping it and always so far deserving it. If your first teacher, dear, such a poor one, and so much in need of being taught herself, had been your teacher at the present time, she thinks she knows what lesson she would set. But it would be a hard one to learn, and you have got beyond her and it's of no use now." So, with a quiet sigh for me, Biddy rose from the bank, and said, with a fresh and pleasant change of voice, "'Shall we walk a little further, or go home?' "'Biddy!' I cried, getting up, putting my arm round her neck, and giving her a kiss. "'I shall always tell you everything.' "'Till you're a gentleman,' said Biddy. "'You know I never shall be, so that's always.' Not that I have any occasion to tell you anything, for you know everything I know, as I told you at home the other night." "'Ah!' said Biddy, quite in a whisper, as she looked away at the ships, and then repeated, with her former pleasant change, "'Shall we walk a little further, or go home?' I said to Biddy, we would walk a little further, and we did so, and the summer afternoon toned down into the summer evening and it was very beautiful. I began to consider whether I was not more naturally and wholesomely situated, after all, in these circumstances, than playing beggar my neighbour by candlelight in the room with the stopped clocks, and being despised by Estella. I thought it would be very good for me if I could get her out of my head, with all the rest of those remembrances and fancies, and could go to work, determined to relish what I had to do, and stick to it, and make the best of it. I asked myself the question whether I did not surely know 
that if Estella were beside me at that moment, instead of Biddy, she would make me miserable. I was obliged to admit that I did know it for a certainty, and I said to myself, "'Pip, what a fool you are!' We talked a good deal as we walked, and all that Biddy said seemed right. Biddy was never insulting or capricious, or Biddy to-day and somebody else to-morrow. She would have derived only pain, and no pleasure, from giving me pain. She would far rather have wounded her own breast than mine. How could it be, then, that I did not like her much the better of the two? "'Biddy,' said I, when we were walking homeward, "'I wish you could put me right.' "'I wish I could,' said Biddy. "'If I could only get myself to fall in love with you. You don't mind my speaking so openly to such an old acquaintance?' "'Oh, dear, not at all,' said Biddy. "'Don't mind me. If I could only get myself to do it, that would be the thing for me. But you never will, you see,' said Biddy. It did not appear quite so unlikely to me that evening, as it would have done if we had discussed it a few hours before. I therefore observed I was not quite sure of that. But Biddy said she was, and she said it decisively. In my heart I believed her to be right, and yet I took it rather ill, too, that she should be so positive on the point. When we came near the churchyard, we had to cross an embankment, and get over a stile near a sluice-gate. There started up from the gate, or from the rushes, or from the ooze, which was quite in his stagnant way, old Orlick. "'Hallo!' he growled. "'Where are you two going?' "'Where should we be going but home?' "'Well, then,' said he, "'I'm jiggered if I don't see you home.' This penalty of being jiggered was a favourite, suppositious case of his. He attached no definite meaning to the word that I am aware of, but used it, like his own pretended Christian name, to affront mankind, and convey an idea of something savagely damaging. When I was younger, I had had a general belief that if he had jiggered me personally, he would have done it with a sharp and twisted hook. Biddy was much against his going with us, and said to me in a whisper, don't let him come. I don't like him." As I did not like him either, I took the liberty of saying that we thanked him, but we didn't want seeing home. He received that piece of information with a yell of laughter, and dropped back, but came slouching after us at a little distance. Curious to know whether Biddy suspected him of having had a hand in that murderous attack, of which my sister had never been able to give any account, I asked her why she did not like him. Oh," she replied, glancing over her shoulder as he slouched after us, "'because I—I'm afraid he likes me.' "'Did he ever tell you he liked you?' I asked indignantly. "'No,' said Biddy, glancing over her shoulder again. "'He never told me so, but he dances at me whenever he can catch my eye.' However novel and peculiar this testimony of attachment, I did not doubt the accuracy of the interpretation. I was very hot indeed upon old Orlick's daring to admire her, as hot as if it were an outrage on myself. "'But it makes no difference to you, you know,' said Biddy, calmly. "'No, Biddy, it makes no difference to me. Only I don't like it. I don't approve of it.' 
nor I neither,' said Biddy. "'So that makes no difference to you.' "'Exactly,' said I. "'But I must tell you, I should have no opinion of you, Biddy, if he danced at you with your own consent.' I kept an eye on Orlick after that night, and, whenever circumstances were favourable to his dancing at Biddy, got before him to obscure that demonstration. He had struck root in Joe's establishment, by reason of my sister's sudden fancy for him, or I should have tried to get him dismissed. He quite understood and reciprocated my good intentions, as I had reason to know thereafter. And now, because my mind was not confused enough before, I complicated its confusion fifty thousandfold, by having states and seasons, when I was clear that Biddy was immeasurably better than Estella, and that the plain honest working life to which I was born had nothing in it to be ashamed of, but offered me sufficient means of self-respect and happiness. At those times I would decide conclusively that my disaffection to dear old Joe and the forge was gone, and that I was growing up in a fair way to be partners with Joe, and to keep company with Biddy, when all in a moment some confounding remembrance of the Havisham days would fall upon me like a destructive missile, and scatter my wits again. Scattered wits take a long time picking up, and often, before I had got them well together, they would be dispersed in all directions by one stray thought, that perhaps, after all, Miss Havisham was going to make my fortune when my time was out. If my time had run out, it would have left me still at the height of my perplexities, I dare say. It never did run out, however but was brought to a premature end, as I proceed to relate. End of chapter 17「Chapter 18 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 18 it was in the fourth year of my apprenticeship to Joe, and it was a Saturday night. There was a group assembled round the fire at the Three Jolly Bargemen, attentive to Mr. Wopsle, as he read the newspaper aloud. Of that group I was one. A highly popular murder had been committed, and Mr. Wopsle was imbrued in blood to the eyebrows. He gloated over every abhorrent adjective in the description and identified himself with every witness at the inquest. He faintly moaned, "'I am done for,' as the victim, and he barbarously bellowed, "'I'll serve you out,' as the murderer. He gave the medical testimony, in pointed imitation of our local practitioner, and he piped and shook as the aged turnpike-keeper, who had heard blows, to an extent so very paralytic as to suggest a doubt regarding the mental competency of that witness. The coroner, in Mr. Wopsle's hands, became Timon of Athens, the beadle Coriolanus. He enjoyed himself thoroughly, and we all enjoyed ourselves, and were delightfully comfortable. In this cosy state of mind we came to the verdict, willful murder. Then, and not sooner, I became aware of a strange gentleman, leaning over the back of the settle opposite me, looking on. There was an expression of contempt on his face, 
and he bit the side of a great forefinger as he watched the group of faces. "'Well,' said the stranger to Mr. Wopsle, when the reading was done, "'you have settled it all to your own satisfaction, I have no doubt.' Everybody started and looked up, as if it were the murderer. He looked at everybody coldly and sarcastically. "'Guilty, of course,' said he. "'Out with it. Come.' "'Sir,' returned Mr. Wopsle, "'without having the honour of your acquaintance, I do say guilty.' Upon this we all took courage to unite in a confirmatory murmur. "'I know you do,' said the stranger. "'I knew you would. I told you so. But now I'll ask you a question.' Do you know, or do you not know, that the law of England supposes every man to be innocent until he is proved—proved—to be guilty? Sir, Mr. Wopsle began to reply, as an Englishman myself, I— Come, said the stranger, biting his forefinger at him. Don't evade the question. Either you know it, or you don't know it. Which is it to be? He stood with his head on one side and himself on one side, in a bullying, interrogative manner, and he threw his forefinger at Mr. Wopsle, as it were to mark him out, before biting it again. "'Now,' said he, "'do you know it, or don't you know it?' "'Certainly I know it,' replied Mr. Wopsle. "'Certainly you know it. Then why didn't you say so at first? Now, I'll ask you another question.' Taking possession of Mr. Wopsle, as if he had a right to him. "'Do you know that none of these witnesses have yet been cross-examined?' Mr. Wopsle was beginning, "'I can only say—when the stranger stopped him. "'What?' "'You won't answer the question, yes or no? "'Now, I'll try you again,' throwing his finger at him again. "'Attend me. Are you aware, or are you not aware?' that none of these witnesses have yet been cross-examined? Come, I only want one word from you, yes or no." Mr. Wopsle hesitated, and we all began to conceive rather a poor opinion of him. "'Come,' said the stranger, "'I'll help you. You don't deserve help, but I'll help you. Look at that paper you hold in your hand. What is it?' "'What is it?' repeated Mr. Wopsle, eyeing it, much at a loss. "'Is it,' pursued the stranger, in his most sarcastic and suspicious manner, "'the printed paper you have just been reading from?' "'Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Now, turn to that paper, and tell me whether it distinctly states that the prisoner expressly said that his legal advisers instructed him altogether to reserve his defence. "'I read that just now,' Mr. Wopsle pleaded. "'Never mind what you read just now, sir. I don't ask you what you read just now. You may read the Lord's Prayer backwards, if you like, and perhaps have done it before to-day. Turn to the paper. No, 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 my friend, not to the top of the column. You know better than that. To the bottom. To the bottom.' We all began to think Mr. Wopsle full of subterfuge. "'Well, have you found it?' "'Here it is,' said Mr. Wopsle. "'Now.' Follow that passage with your eye, and tell me whether it distinctly states that the prisoner expressly said that he was instructed by his legal advisers wholly to reserve his defence.' 
Come, do you make that of it? Mr. Wopsle answered, Those are not the exact words. Not the exact words? repeated the gentleman bitterly. Is that the exact substance? Yes, said Mr. Wopsle. Yes, repeated the stranger, looking round at the rest of the company, with his right hand extended towards the witness. Wopsle. And now I ask you what you say to the conscience of that man who, with that passage before his eyes, can lay his head upon his pillow after having pronounced a fellow-creature guilty, unheard? We all began to suspect that Mr. Wopsle was not the man we had thought him, and that he was beginning to be found out. And that same man, remember, pursued the gentleman, throwing his finger at Mr. Wopsle heavily, that same man might be summoned as a juryman upon this very trial, and, having thus deeply committed himself, might return to the bosom of his family, and lay his head upon his pillow, after deliberately swearing that he would well and truly try the issue joined between our sovereign lord the king and the prisoner at the bar, and would a true verdict give according to the evidence, so help him God. We were all deeply persuaded that the unfortunate Wopsle had gone too far, and had better stop in his reckless career while there was yet time. The strange gentleman, with an air of authority not to be disputed, and with a manner expressive of knowing something secret about every one of us, that would effectually do for each individual if he chose to disclose it, left the back of the settle, and came into the space between the two settles in front of the fire, where he remained standing, his left hand in his pocket, and he biting the forefinger of his right. "'From information I have received,' said he, looking round at us as we all quailed before him, "'I have reason to believe there is a blacksmith among you, by name Joseph, or Joe, Gargery. Which is the man?' "'Here is the man,' said Joe. The strange gentleman beckoned him out of his place, and Joe went. "'You have an apprentice.' pursued the stranger. Commonly known as Pip. Is he here? I'm here, I cried. The stranger did not recognize me, but I recognized him, as a gentleman I had met on the stairs, on the occasion of my second visit to Miss Havisham. I had known him the moment I saw him looking over the settle, and now that I stood confronting him with his hand upon my shoulder, I checked off again in detail, his large head, his dark complexion, his deep-set eyes, his bushy black eyebrows, his large watch-chain, his strong black dots of beard and whisker, and even the smell of scented soap on his great hand. "'I wish to have a private conference with you two, said he, when he had surveyed me at his leisure. "'It will take a little time. Perhaps you had better go to your place of residence. I prefer not to anticipate my communication here. You will impart as much or as little of it as you please to your friends afterwards. I have nothing to do with that." Amidst a wondering silence, we three walked out of the jolly bargeman, and in a wondering silence walked home. While going along, the strange gentleman occasionally looked at me, and occasionally bit the side of his finger. As we neared home, Joe vaguely acknowledging the occasion as an impressive and ceremonious one, went on ahead to open the front door. Our conference was held in the state parlour, which was feebly lighted by one candle. 
It began with the strange gentleman sitting down at the table, drawing the candle to him, and looking over some entries in his pocket-book. He then put up the pocket-book, and set the candle a little aside. After peering round it into the darkness at Joe, and me, to ascertain which was which. "'My name,' he said, "'is Jaggers, and I am a lawyer in London. I am pretty well known. I have unusual business to transact with you, and I commence by explaining that it is not of my originating. If my advice had been asked, I should not have been here. It was not asked, and you see me here. What I have to do as the confidential agent of another, I do. No less, no more." Finding that he could not see us very well from where he sat, he got up, and threw one leg over the back of a chair, and leaned upon it, thus having one foot on the seat of the chair, and one foot on the ground. "'Now, Joseph Gargery, I am the bearer of an offer to relieve you of this young fellow, your apprentice. You would not object to cancel his indentures at his request and for his good? You would want nothing for so doing?' "'Lord forbid that I should want anything for not standing in Pip's way,' said Joe, staring. "'Lord forbidding is pious, but not to the purpose.' returned Mr. Jaggers. "'The question is, would you want anything? Do you want anything?' "'The answer is,' returned Joe sternly, "'no.' I thought Mr. Jaggers glanced at Joe, as if he considered him a fool for his disinterestedness. But I was too much bewildered between breathless curiosity and surprise to be sure of it. "'Very well,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Recollect the admission you have made.' and don't try to go from it presently. "'Who's a-going to try?' retorted Joe. "'I don't say anybody is. Do you keep a dog?' "'Yes, I do keep a dog.' "'Bear in mind, then, that Bragg is a good dog, but Hold Fast is a better. Bear that in mind, will you?' repeated Mr. Jaggers, shutting his eyes and nodding his head at Joe, as if he were forgiving him something. "'Now,' I return to this young fellow, and the communication I've got to make is that he has great expectations." Joe and I gasped, and looked at one another. "'I am instructed to communicate to him,' said Mr. Jaggers, throwing his finger at me sideways, "'that he will come into a handsome property. Further, that it is the desire of the present possessor of that property, that he be immediately removed from his present sphere of life, and from this place and be brought up as a gentleman, in a word, as a young fellow of great expectations." My dream was out. My wild fancy was surpassed by sober reality. Miss Havisham was going to make my fortune on a grand scale. "'Now, Mr. Pip,' pursued the lawyer, "'I address the rest of what I have to say to you. You are to understand, first that it is the request of the person from whom I take my instructions, that you always bear the name of Pip. You will have no objection, I dare say, to your great expectations being encumbered with that easy condition. But if you have any objection, this is the time to mention it." My heart was beating so fast, and there was such a singing in my ears, that I could scarcely stammer I had no objection. I should think not. Now. You are to understand, secondly, Mr. Pip, 
that the name of the person who is your liberal benefactor remains a profound secret, until the person chooses to reveal it. I am empowered to mention that it is the intention of the person to reveal it at first hand, by word of mouth to yourself. When or where that intention may be carried out, I cannot say. No one can say. It may be years hence. Now, you are distinctly to understand that you are most positively prohibited from making any inquiry on this head, or any allusion or reference, however distant, to any individual whomsoever as the individual, in all the communications you may have with me. If you have a suspicion in your own breast, keep that suspicion in your own breast. It is not the least to the purpose what the reasons of this prohibition are. They may be the strongest and gravest reasons, or they may be mere whim. This is not for you to inquire into. The condition is laid down. Your acceptance of it, and your observance of it as binding, is the only remaining condition that I am charged with, by the person from whom I take my instructions, and for whom I am not otherwise responsible. That person is the person from whom you derive your expectations, and the secret is solely held by that person and by me. Again, not a very difficult condition with which to encumber such a rise in fortune, but if you have any objection to it, this is the time to mention it. Speak out. Once more, I stammered with difficulty that I had no objection. I should think not. Now, Mr. Pip, I have done the stipulations. Though he called me Mr. Pip, and began rather to make up to me, he still could not get rid of a certain air of bullying suspicion, and even now he occasionally shut his eyes and threw his finger at me while he spoke, as much as to express that he knew all kinds of things to my disparagement, if he only chose to mention them. We come next to mere details of arrangement. You must know that, although I have used the term expectations more than once, you are not endowed with expectations only. There is already lodged in my hands a sum of money amply sufficient for your suitable education and maintenance. You will please consider me your guardian. Oh, for I was going to thank him. I tell you at once, I am paid for my services, or I shouldn't render them. It is considered that you must be better educated, in accordance with your altered position, and that you will be alive to the importance and necessity of at once entering on that advantage. I said I had always longed for it. Never mind what you've always longed for, Mr. Pip, he retorted. Keep to the record. If you long for it now, that's enough. Am I answered that you are ready to be placed at once under some proper tutor? Is that it? I stammered, yes, that was it. Good. Now your inclinations are to be consulted. I don't think that wise, mind, but it's my trust. Have you ever heard of any tutor whom you would prefer to another? I had never heard of any tutor but Biddy and Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt, so I replied in the negative. There is a certain tutor of whom I have some knowledge, who I think might suit the purpose, said Mr. Jaggers. I don't recommend him, observe because I never recommend anybody. The gentleman I speak of is one Mr. Matthew Pocket. Ah, I caught at the name directly. Miss Havisham's relation. 
the Matthew whom Mr. and Mrs. Camilla had spoken of, the Matthew whose place was to be at Miss Havisham's head, when she lay dead in her bride's dress on the bride's table. "'You know the name?' said Mr. Jaggers, looking shrewdly at me, and then shutting up his eyes while he waited for my answer. My answer was, that I had heard of the name. "'Oh,' said he, "'you have heard of the name. But the question is, what do you say of it?' I said, or tried to say, that I was much obliged to him for his recommendation. "'No, my young friend,' he interrupted, shaking his great head very slowly, "'recollect yourself.' Not recollecting myself, I began again, that I was much obliged to him for his recommendation. "'No, my young friend,' he interrupted, shaking his head, and frowning, and smiling, both at once. "'No, no, no, no. It's very well done. But it won't do. You are too young to fix me with it. Recommendation is not the word, Mr. Pip. Try another.' Correcting myself, I said that I was much obliged to him for his mention of Mr. Matthew Pocket. "'That's more like it,' cried Mr. Jaggers. "'And,' I added, "'I would gladly try that gentleman.' "'Good. You had better try him in his own house. The way shall be prepared for you, and you can see his son first, who is in London. When will you come to London?' I said, glancing at Joe, who stood looking on motionless, that I supposed I could come directly.' First, said Mr. Jaggers, you should have some new clothes to come in, and they should not be working clothes. Say, this day week? You'll want some money. Shall I leave you twenty guineas? He produced a long purse, with the greatest coolness, and counted them out on the table, and pushed them over to me. This was the first time he had taken his leg from the chair. He sat astride of the chair when he had pushed the money over and sat swinging his purse and eyeing Joe. "'Well, Joseph Gargery, you look dumbfounded.' "'I am,' said Joe, in a very decided manner. "'It was understood that you wanted nothing for yourself, remember?' "'It were understood,' said Joe, "'and it are understood, and it ever will be similar according.' "'But what?' said Mr. Jaggers, swinging his purse. What if it was in my instructions, to make you a present, as compensation?" "'As compensation? What for?' Joe demanded. "'For the loss of his services?' Joe laid his hand upon my shoulder, with the touch of a woman. I have often thought him since, like the steam-hammer that can crush a man or pat an eggshell, in his combination of strength with gentleness. "'Pip, is that hearty welcome?' said Joe to go free with his services, to honour and fortune, as no words can tell him. But if you think as money can make compensation to me for the loss of the little child, what come to the forge, and ever the best of friends—oh, dear good Joe, whom I was so ready to leave, and so unthankful to—I see you again, with your muscular blacksmith's arm before your eyes, and your broad chest heaving and your voice dying away. Oh, dear, good, faithful, tender Joe! I feel the loving tremble of your hand upon my arm, as solemnly this day, as if it had been the rustle of an angel's wing. But I encouraged Joe at the time. 
I was lost in the mazes of my future fortunes, and could not retrace the by-paths we had trodden together. I begged Joe to be comforted, for, as he said, we had ever been the best of friends, and, as I said, we ever would be so. Joe scooped his eyes with his disengaged wrist, as if he were bent on gouging himself, but said not another word. Mr. Jaggers had looked on at this, as one who recognised in Joe the village idiot, and in me his keeper. When it was over, he said, weighing in his hand the purse he had ceased to swing, "'Now, Joseph Gorgory, I warn you this is your last chance. No half-measures with me. If you mean to take a present, that I have it in charge to make you, speak out, and you shall have it. If, on the contrary, you mean to say—' Here, to his great amazement, he was stopped by Joe suddenly working round him with every demonstration of a fell pugilistic purpose. "'Which I mean or say?' cried Joe, that if you come into my place, bull-baiting and badgering me, come out. Which I mean to say, as such, if you're a man, come on. Which I mean to say, that what I say, I mean to say, and stand or fall, boy." I drew Joe away, and he immediately became placable, merely stating to me, in an obliging manner, and as a polite expostulatory notice to any one whom it might happen to concern, that he were not a-going to be bull-baited and badgered in his own place. Mr. Jaggers had risen when Joe demonstrated, and had backed near the door. Without evincing any inclination to come in again, he there delivered his valedictory remarks. They were these. "'Well, Mr. Pip, I think the sooner you leave here, as you are to be a gentleman, the better. Let it stand for this day week and you shall receive my printed address in the meantime. You can take a hackney-coach at the stage-coach office in London, and come straight to me. Understand that I express no opinion, one way or the other, on the trust I undertake. I am paid for undertaking it, and I do so. Now, understand that, finally. Understand that." He was throwing his finger at both of us, and I think would have gone on, but for his seeming to think Joe dangerous and going off. Something came into my head which induced me to run after him, as he was going down to the jolly bargeman, where he had left a hired carriage. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Jaggers.' "'Hullo,' said he, facing round. "'What's the matter?' "'I wish to be quite right, Mr. Jaggers, and to keep to your directions, so I thought I'd better ask. Would there be any objection?' to my taking leave of any one I know about here, before I go away?" "'No,' said he, looking as if he hardly understood me. "'I don't mean in the village only, but uptown.' "'No,' said he. "'No objection.' I thanked him, and ran home again. And there I found that Joe had already locked the front door, and vacated the state parlour, and was seated by the kitchen fire, with a hand on each knee gazing intently at the burning coals. I, too, sat down before the fire, and gazed at the coals, and nothing was said for a long time. My sister was in her cushioned chair in her corner, and Biddy sat at her needlework before the fire, and Joe sat next to Biddy, and I sat next to Joe, in the corner opposite my sister. The more I looked into the glowing coals, the more incapable I became of looking at Joe 
the longer the silence lasted, the more unable I felt to speak. At length I got out. "'Joe, have you told Biddy?' "'No, Pip,' returned Joe, still looking at the fire, and holding his knees tight, as if he had private information that they intended to make off somewhere. "'Which I left it to yourself, Pip.' "'I would rather you told, Joe.' "'Pip's a gentleman of fortune, then,' said Joe, "'and God bless him in it.' Biddy dropped her work and looked at me. Joe held his knees and looked at me. I looked at both of them. After a pause, they both heartily congratulated me. But there was a certain touch of sadness in their congratulations that I rather resented. I took it upon myself to impress Biddy, and through Biddy Joe, with the grave obligation I considered my friends under, to know nothing and say nothing about the maker of my fortune. It would all come out in good time, I observed, and in the meanwhile nothing was to be said, save that I had come into great expectations from a mysterious patron. Betty nodded her head thoughtfully at the fire, as she took up her work again, and said she would be very particular, and Joe, still detaining his knees, said, "'Aye, aye, I'll be eckervally particular, Pip,' and then they congratulated me again, and went on to express so much wonder at the notion of my being a gentleman, that I didn't half like it. Infinite pains were then taken by Biddy to convey to my sister some idea of what had happened. To the best of my belief those efforts entirely failed. She laughed and nodded her head a great many times, and even repeated after Biddy the words Pip and Property, but I doubt if they had more meaning in them than an election cry, and I cannot suggest a darker picture of her state of mind. I never could have believed it without experience, but as Joe and Biddy became more at their cheerful ease again, I became quite gloomy. Dissatisfied with my fortune, of course I could not be, but it is possible that I may have been, without quite knowing it, dissatisfied with myself. Anyhow, I sat with my elbow on my knee and my face upon my hand, looking into the fire, as those two talked about my going away and about what they should do without me, and all that. And whenever I caught one of them looking at me, though never so pleasantly, and they often looked at me, particularly Biddy, I felt offended, as if they were expressing some mistrust of me, though heaven knows they never did by word or sign. At those times I would get up and look out at the door, for our kitchen door opened at once upon the night, and stood open on summer evenings to air the room. The very stars to which I then raised my eyes, I am afraid I took to be but poor and humble stars, for glittering on the rustic objects among which I had passed my life. "'Saturday night,' said I, when we sat at our supper of bread and cheese and beer, Five more days, and then the day before the day, they'll soon go.' "'Yes, Pip,' observed Joe, whose voice sounded hollow in his beer-mug, "'they'll soon go.' "'Soon, soon go,' said Biddy. "'I have been thinking, Joe, that when I go down town on Monday, and order my new clothes, I shall tell the tailor that I'll come and put them on there, or that I'll have them sent to Mr. Pumblechook's. It would be very disagreeable to be stared at by all the people here. "'Master and Mrs. Hubble might like to see you in your new genteel figure, too, Pip,' said Joe. 
industriously cutting his bread, with his cheese on it, in the palm of his left hand, and glancing at my untasted supper, as if he thought of the time when we used to compare slices. So might Wopsle, and the jolly barge-men might take it as a compliment. That's just what I don't want, Joe. They would make it such a business of it, such a coarse and common business, that I couldn't bear myself. Ah, that indeed, Pip, said Joe. If you couldn't abear yourself. Biddy asked me here, as she sat holding my sister's plate. Have you thought about when you'll show yourself to Mr. Gargery and your sister and me? You'll show yourself to us, won't you? Biddy, I returned, with some resentment. You are so exceedingly quick that it's difficult to keep up with you. She always were quick, observed Joe. If you had waited another moment, Biddy, you would have heard me say that I shall bring my clothes here in a bundle one evening, most likely on the evening before I go away." Biddy said no more. Handsomely forgiving her, I soon exchanged an affectionate good-night with her and Joe, and went up to bed. When I got into my little room, I sat down and took a long look at it, as a mean little room that I should soon be parted from, and raised above forever. It was furnished with fresh young remembrances, too, and even at the same moment I fell into much the same confused division of mind between it and the better rooms to which I was going, as I had been in so often between the Forge and Miss Havisham's and Biddy and Estella. The sun had been shining brightly all day on the roof of my attic, and the room was warm. As I put the window open and stood looking out, I saw Joe come slowly forth at the dark door below, and take a turn or two in the air, and then I saw Biddy come, and bring him a pipe, and light it for him. He never smoked so late, and it seemed to hint to me that he wanted comforting, for some reason or other. He presently stood at the door immediately beneath me, smoking his pipe, and Biddy stood there too, quietly talking to him, and I knew that they talked of me for I heard my name mentioned in an endearing tone by both of them, more than once. I would not have listened for more, if I could have heard more. So I drew away from the window, and sat down in my one chair by the bedside, feeling it very sorrowful and strange, that this first night of my bright fortunes should be the loneliest I had ever known. Looking towards the open window, I saw light wreaths from Joe's pipe floating there, and I fancied it was like a blessing from Joe, not obtruded on me, or paraded before me, but pervading the air we shared together. I put my light out, and crept into bed. And it was an uneasy bed now, and I never slept the old sound sleep in it any more. End of chapter 18「Chapter 19 of Great Expectations – this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 19. Morning made a considerable difference in my general prospect of life, and brightened it so much that it scarcely seemed the same. What lay heaviest on my mind was the consideration that six days intervened between me and the day of departure for I could not divest myself of a misgiving that something might happen to London in the meantime, 
and that, when I got there, it would be either greatly deteriorated or clean gone. Joe and Biddy were very sympathetic and pleasant when I spoke of our approaching separation, but they only referred to it when I did. After breakfast, Joe brought out my indentures from the press in the best parlour, and we put them in the fire, and I felt that I was free. With all the novelty of my emancipation on me, I went to church with Joe, and thought perhaps the clergyman wouldn't have read that about the rich man and the kingdom of heaven if he had known all. After our early dinner, I strolled out alone, purposing to finish off the marshes at once and get them done with. As I passed the church, I felt, as I had felt during the service in the morning, a sublime compassion for the poor creatures who were destined to go there, Sunday after Sunday, all their lives through, and to lie obscurely at last among the low green mounds. I promised myself that I would do something for them one of these days, and formed a plan and outline for bestowing a dinner of roast beef and plum pudding, a pint of ale, and a gallon of condescension upon everybody in the village. If I had often thought before, with something allied to shame, of my companionship with the fugitive whom I had once seen limping among those graves, what were my thoughts on this Sunday, when the place recalled the wretch, ragged and shivering, with his felon iron and badge? My comfort was that it happened a long time ago and that he had doubtless been transported a long way off, and that he was dead to me, and might be veritably dead into the bargain. No more low wet grounds, no more dikes and sluices, no more of these grazing cattle, though they seemed, in their dull manner, to wear a more respectful air now, and to face round in order that they might stay as long as possible at the possessor of such great expectations. Farewell, monotonous acquaintances of my childhood. Henceforth I was for London and greatness, not for Smith's work in general and for you. I made my exultant way to the old battery, and, lying down there to consider the question whether Miss Havisham intended me for Estella, fell asleep. When I awoke, I was much surprised to find Joe sitting beside me, smoking his pipe. He greeted me with a cheerful smile on my opening my eyes, and said, "'As being the last time, Pip, I thought I'd follow "'And, Joe, I'm very glad you did so.' "'Thank ye, Pip.' "'You may be sure, dear Joe,' I went on, after we had shaken hands, "'that I shall never forget you.' "'No, no, Pip,' said Joe, in a comfortable tone. "'I'm sure of that. Aye, aye, old chap. Bless you.' It were only necessary to get it well round in a man's mind, to be certain on it. But it took a bit of time to get it well round. The change come so uncommon plump, didn't it? Somehow I was not best pleased with Joe's being so mightily secure of me. I shouldn't have liked him to have betrayed emotion, or to have said, It does you credit, Pip, or something of that sort. Therefore I made no remark on Joe's first head merely saying as to his second, that the tidings had indeed come suddenly, but that I had always wanted to be a gentleman, and had often and often speculated on what I would do if I were one. "'Have you, though?' said Joe. "'Astonishing!' "'It's a pity now, Joe,' said I, "'that you did not get on a little more when we had our lessons here, isn't it?' "'Well, I don't know.' 
returned Joe. "'I'm so awful dull. I'm only master of my own trade. It were always a pity, as I was so awful dull. But it's no more of a pity now than it was this day twelve-month, don't you see?' What I had meant was, that when I came into my property, and was able to do something for Joe, it would have been much more agreeable if he had been better qualified for a rise in station. He was so perfectly innocent of my meaning, however, that I thought I would mention it to Biddy in preference. So, when we had walked home and had had tea, I took Biddy into our little garden by the side of the lane, and, after throwing out in a general way for the elevation of her spirits that I should never forget her, said I had a favour to ask of her. "'And it is, Biddy,' said I, "'that you will not omit any opportunity of helping Joe on a little.' "'How helping him on?' asked Biddy, with a steady sort of glance. "'Well, Joe's a dear good fellow. In fact, I think he is the dearest fellow that ever lived. But he is rather backward in some things. For instance, Biddy, in his learning and his manners.' Although I was looking at Biddy as I spoke, and although she opened her eyes very wide when I had spoken, she did not look at me. "'Oh! His manners! Won't his manners do, then?' asked Biddy, plucking a black currant leaf. "'My dear Biddy, they do very well here—' "'Oh! They do very well here,' interrupted Biddy, looking closely at the leaf in her hand. "'Hear me out.' But if I were to remove Joe into a higher sphere, as I shall hope to remove him when I am fully coming to my property, they would hardly do him justice. "'And don't you think he knows that?' asked Biddy. It was such a very provoking question, for it had never in the most distant manner occurred to me, that I said snappishly, "'Biddy, what do you mean?' Biddy, having rubbed the leaf to pieces between her hands, and the smell of a black currant bush has ever since recalled to me, that evening in the little garden by the side of the lane, said, "'Have you never considered that he may be proud?' "'Proud?' I repeated, with disdainful emphasis. "'Oh, there are many kinds of pride,' said Biddy, looking full at me and shaking her head. "'Pride is not all of one kind.' "'Well, what are you stopping for?' said I. "'Not all of one kind,' resumed Biddy. "'He may be too proud to let any one take him out of a place that he is competent to fill, and fills well, and with respect. To tell you the truth, I think he is. Though it sounds bold in me to say so, for you must know him far better than I do.' "'Now, Biddy,' said I, "'I am very sorry to see this in you. I did not expect to see this in you. You are envious, Biddy, and grudging.' You are dissatisfied on account of my rise in fortune, and you can't help showing it. "'If you have the heart to think so,' returned Biddy, "'say so. Say so over and over again, if you have the heart to think so.' "'If you have the hearts to be so, you mean, Biddy,' said I, in a virtuous and superior tone. "'Don't put it off on me. I am very sorry to see it, and it's a, it's a bad side of human nature.' I did intend to ask you to use any little opportunities you might have, after I was gone, of improving, dear Joe. But after this, I ask you nothing. I'm extremely sorry to see this in you, Biddy," I repeated, 
it's—it's a bad side of human nature. "'Whether you scold me, or approve of me,' returned poor Biddy, "'you may equally depend upon my trying to do all that lies in my power here, at all times. And whatever opinion you take away of me, shall make no difference in my remembrance of you. Yet a gentleman should not be unjust neither,' said Biddy, turning away her head. I again warmly repeated that it was a bad side of human nature, in which sentiment, waving its application, I have since seen reason to think I was right. And I walked down the little path away from Biddy, and Biddy went into the house, and I went out at the garden gate, and took a dejected stroll until supper-time, again feeling it very sorrowful and strange that this, the second night of my bright fortunes, should be as lonely and unsatisfactory as the first. But— Morning once more brightened my view, and I extended my clemency to Biddy, and we dropped the subject. Putting on the best clothes I had, I went into town as early as I could hope to find the shops open, and presented myself before Mr. Trabb, the tailor, who was having his breakfast in the parlour behind his shop, and who did not think it worth his while to come out to me, but called me in to him. "'Well,' said Mr. Trabb, in a hail-fellow, well-met kind of way. How are you, and what can I do for you?" Mr. Trabb had sliced his hot roll into three feather beds, and was slipping butter in between the blankets and covering it up. He was a prosperous old bachelor, and his open window looked into a prosperous little garden and orchard, and there was a prosperous iron safe let into the wall at the side of his fireplace, and I did not doubt that heaps of his prosperity were put away in it in bags. "'Mr. Trabb,' said I, "'it's an unpleasant thing to have to mention, because it looks like boasting, but I have come into a handsome property.' A change passed over Mr. Trabb. He forgot the butter in bed, got up from the bedside, and wiped his fingers on the tablecloth, exclaiming, "'Lord, bless my soul!' "'I am going up to my garden in London,' said I, casually drawing some guineas out of my pocket and looking at them and I want a fashionable suit of clothes to go in. I wish to pay for them," I added. Otherwise, I thought, he might only pretend to make them. With ready money. "'My dear sir,' said Mr. Trabb, as he respectfully bent his body, opened his arms, and took the liberty of touching me on the outside of each elbow. "'Don't hurt me by mentioning that. May I venture to congratulate you? Would you do me the favour of stepping into the shop?" Mr. Trabb's boy was the most audacious boy in all that countryside. When I had entered, he was sweeping the shop, and he had sweetened his labours by sweeping over me. He was still sweeping when I came out into the shop with Mr. Trabb, and he knocked the broom against all possible corners and obstacles, to express, as I understood it, equality with any blacksmith, alive or dead. "'Hold that noise,' said Mr. Trabb, with the greatest sternness, "'or I'll knock your head off.' "'Do me the favour to be seated, sir. Now this,' said Mr. Trabb, taking down a roll of cloth, and tidying it out in a flowing manner over the counter, preparatory to getting his hand under it to show the gloss, "'is a very sweet article. I can recommend it for your purpose, sir because it really is extra super. But you shall see some others. 
give me number four, you. To the boy, and with a dreadful severe stare, foreseeing the danger of that miscreant's brushing me with it, or making some other sign of familiarity. Mr. Trabb never removed his stern eye from the boy, until he had deposited number four on the counter, and was at a safe distance again. Then he commanded him to bring number five and number eight. "'And let me have none of your tricks here,' said Mr. Trabb, "'or you shall repent it, you young scoundrel, the longest day you have to live.' Mr. Trabb then bent over number four, and in a sort of deferential confidence, recommended it to me as a light article for summer wear, an article much in vogue among the nobility and gentry, an article that it would ever be an honour to him to reflect upon a distinguished fellow-townsman, if he might claim me for a fellow-townsman, having worn. "'Are you bringing numbers five and eight, you vagabond?' said Mr. Trabb to the boy after that. "'Or shall I kick you out of the shop and bring them myself?' I selected the materials for a suit, with the assistance of Mr. Trabb's judgment, and re-entered the parlour to be measured, for, although Mr. Trabb had my measure already, and had previously been quite contented with it, he said apologetically that it wouldn't do under existing circumstances, sir, wouldn't do at all. So Mr. Trabb measured and calculated me in the parlour, as if I were an estate, and he the finest species of surveyor, and gave himself such a world of trouble that I felt that no suit of clothes could possibly remunerate him for his pains. When he had at last done, and had appointed to send the articles to Mr. Pumblechook's on the Thursday evening, he said, with his hand upon the parlour lock, "'I know, sir, that London gentlemen cannot be expected to patronise local work as a rule, but if you would give me a turn now and then in the quality of a townsman, I should greatly esteem it. Good morning, sir. Much obliged.' door the last word was flung at the boy who had not the least notion what it meant but i saw him collapse as his master rubbed me out with his hands and my first decided experience of the stupendous power of money was that it had morally laid upon his back trab's boy after this memorable event i went to the hatters and the bootmakers and the hosiers and felt rather like mother hubbard's dog whose outfit required the services of so many trades. I also went to the coach-office, and took my place for seven o'clock on Saturday morning. It was not necessary to explain everywhere that I had come into a handsome property, but whenever I said anything to that effect, it followed that the officiating tradesman ceased to have his attention diverted through the window by the high street, and concentrated his mind upon me. When I had ordered everything I wanted, and directed my steps towards Pumblechook's, and, as I approached that gentleman's place of business, I saw him standing at his door. He was waiting for me with great impatience. He had been out early in the chaise-cart, and had called at the forge, and heard the news. He had prepared a collation for me in the Barnwell parlour, and he too ordered his shopman to come out of the gangway, as my sacred person passed. "'My dear friend,' said Mr. Pumblechook, taking me by both hands, when he and I and the collation were alone, "'I give you joy of your good fortune. Well deserved, well deserved.' 
This was coming to the point, and I thought it a sensible way of expressing himself. "'To think,' said Mr. Pumblechook, after snorting admiration at me for some moments, "'that I should have been the humble instrument of leading up to this is a proud reward.' I begged Mr. Pumblechook to remember that nothing was to be ever said or hinted on that point. "'My dear young friend,' said Mr. Pumblechook, "'if you will allow me to call you so,' I murmured, "'certainly,' and Mr. Pumblechook took me by both hands again, and communicated a movement to his waistcoat, which had an emotional appearance, though it was rather low down. "'My dear young friend, rely upon my doing my little all in your absence by keeping the fact before the mind of Joseph.' "'Joseph,' said Mr. Pumblechook, in the way of a compassionate adjuration, "'Joseph, Joseph!' Thereupon he shook his head and tapped it, expressing his sense of deficiency in Joseph. "'But, my dear young friend,' said Mr. Pumblechook, "'you must be hungry, you must be exhausted, be seated. Here is a chicken had round from the ball. "'Here is a tongue had round from the boar. "'Here's one or two little things had round from the boar "'that I hope you may not despise. "'But do I?' said Mr. Pumblechook, "'getting up again, the moment after he had sat down. "'See afore me him as I ever sported with "'in his times of happy infancy. <laughs> "'And may I, may I?' "'This may I?' meant mighty shake hands. I consented, and he was fervent, and then sat down again. "'Here is wine,' said Mr. Pumblechook. "'Let us drink, thanks to fortune, and may she ever pick out her favourites with equal judgment. And yet I cannot,' said Mr. Pumblechook, getting up again. "'See for me one,' and likewise drink to one, without again expressing, may I, may I? I said he might, and he shook hands with me again, and emptied his glass, and turned it upside down. I did the same, and if I had turned myself upside down before drinking, the wine could not have gone more direct to my head. Mr. Pumblechook helped me to the liver wing, and to the best slice of tongue, none of those out-of-the-way, no thoroughfares of pork now, and took, comparatively speaking, no care of himself at all. "'Ah, oh, poultry, poultry! <laughs> you little thought,' said Mr. Pumblechook, apostrophizing the fowl in the dish, "'when you was a young fledgling, what was in store for you? "'You little thought you was to be refreshment beneath this humble roof for one as—' "'Call it a weakness, if you will,' said Mr. Pumblechook, getting up again. "'But may I? May I?' It began to be unnecessary to repeat the form of saying he might, so he did it at once. How he ever did it so often without wounding himself with my knife, I don't know. "'And your sister,' he resumed, after a little steady eating, "'which had the honour of bringing you up by hand.' It's a sad picture to reflect 
that she's no longer equal to fully understanding the honour, may—' I saw he was about to come at me again, and I stopped him. "'We'll drink her health,' said I. "'Ah!' cried Mr. Pumblechook, leaning back in his chair, quite flaccid with admiration. "'That's the way you know him, sir?' I don't know who sir was, but he certainly was not I, and there was no third person present. "'That's the way you know the noble-minded, sir, ever forgiving and ever affable. It might—' said the servile Pumblechook, putting down his untasted glass in a hurry, and getting up again. "'To a common person have the appearance of repeating, but may I?' When he had done it, he resumed his seat, and drank to my sister. "'Let us never be blind,' said Mr. Pumblechook, "'to her faults of temper. But it is to be hoped she meant well.' At about this time, I began to observe that he was getting flushed in the face. As to myself, I felt all face, steeped in wine and smarting. I mentioned to Mr. Pumblechook that I wished to have my new clothes sent to his house, and he was ecstatic on my so distinguishing him. I mentioned my reason for desiring to avoid observation in the village, and he lauded it to the skies. There was nobody but himself, he intimated, worthy of my confidence and, in short, mighty. Then he asked me tenderly if I remembered our boyish games at sums, and how we had gone together to have me bound apprentice, and, in effect, how he had ever been my favourite fancy and my chosen friend. If I had taken ten times as many glasses of wine as I had, I should have known that he never had stood in that relation towards me, and should, in my heart of hearts, have repudiated the idea. Yet for all that, I remember feeling convinced that I had been much mistaken in him, and that he was a sensible, practical, good-hearted, prime fellow. By degrees he fell to reposing such great confidence in me, as to ask my advice in reference to his own affairs. He mentioned that there was an opportunity for a great amalgamation and monopoly of the corn and seed trade on those premises, if enlarged, such as had never occurred before in that or any other neighbourhood. What alone was wanting to the realisation of a vast fortune he considered to be more capital. Those were the two little words, more capital. Now it appeared to him, Pumblechook, that if that capital were got into the business through a sleeping-partner, sir, which sleeping-partner would have nothing to do but walk in, by self or deputy, whenever he pleased, and examine the books, and walk in twice a year, and take his profits away in his pocket, to the tune of fifty per cent. It appeared to him that that might be an opening for a young gentleman of spirit, combined with property, which would be worthy of his attention. But what did I think? He had great confidence in my opinion. And what did I think? I gave it as my opinion— Wait a bit. The united vastness and distinctness of this view so struck him, that he no longer asked if he might shake hands with me, but said he really must, and did. We drank all the wine, and Mr. Pumblechook pledged himself over and over again to keep Joseph up to the mark—I don't know what mark—and to render me efficient and constant service—I don't know what service. 
he also made known to me for the first time in my life, and certainly after having kept his secret wonderfully well, that he had always said of me, "'That boy is no common boy, and mark me, his fortune will be no common fortune,' he said with a tearful smile, that it was a singular thing to think of now, and I said so too. Finally I went out into the air, with a dim perception that there was something unwonted in the conduct of the sunshine, and found that I had slumberously got to the turnpike without having taken any account of the road. There I was roused by Mr. Pumblechook's hailing me. He was a long way down the sunny street, and was making expressive gestures for me to stop. I stopped, and he came up breathless. Oh, no, no, my dear friend, said he, when he had recovered wind for speech. Not if I can help it. This occasion shall not entirely pass without that affability on your part. May I, as an old friend and well-wisher, may I— We shook hands for the hundredth time at least, and he ordered a young carter out of my way with the greatest indignation. Then he blessed me, and stood waving his hand to me, until I had passed the crook in the road, and then I turned into a field, and had a long nap under a hedge, before I pursued my way home. I had scant luggage to take with me to London, for little of the little I possessed was adapted to my new station. But I began packing that same afternoon, and wildly packed up things that I knew I should want next morning, in a fiction that there was not a moment to be lost. So, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday passed, and on Friday morning I went to Mr. Pumblechook's to put on my new clothes and pay my visit to Miss Havisham. Mr. Pumblechook's own room was given up to me to dress in, and was decorated with clean towels expressly for the event. My clothes were rather a disappointment, of course. Probably every new and eagerly expected garment ever put on since clothes came in fell a trifle short of the wearer's expectation. But— after I had had my suit on some half an hour, and had gone through an immensity of posturing with Mr. Pumblechook's very limited dressing-glass, in a futile endeavour to see my legs, it seemed to fit me better. It being market morning at a neighbouring town some ten miles off, Mr. Pumblechook was not at home. I had not told him exactly when I meant to leave, and was not likely to shake hands with him again before departing. This was all as it should be and I went out in my new array, fearfully ashamed of having to pass the shopman, and suspicious, after all, that I was at a personal disadvantage, something like Joe's in his Sunday suit. I went circuitously to Miss Havisham's, by all the back ways, and rang at the bell constrainedly, on account of the stiff long fingers of my gloves. Sarah Pocket came to the gate, and positively reeled back when she saw me so changed. Her walnut-shell countenance, likewise, turned from brown to green and yellow. "'You!' said she. "'You! Gracious! What do you want?' "'I am going to London, Miss Pocket,' said I. "'I want to say good-bye to Miss Havisham.' I was not expected, for she left me locked in the yard, while she went to ask if I were to be admitted. After a very short delay, she returned, and took me up, staring at me all the way. Miss Havisham was taking exercise in the room with a long-spread table, leaning on her crutch-stick. 
the room was lighted as of yore, and at the sound of our entrance she stopped and turned. She was then just abreast of the rotted bride-cake. "'Don't go, Sarah,' she said. "'Well, Pip?' "'I start for London, Miss Havisham, to-morrow.' I was exceedingly careful what I said, and I thought you would kindly not mind my taking leave of you. "'This is a gay figure, Pip,' said she, making her crutch-stick play round me, as if she, the fairy godmother who had changed me, were bestowing the finishing gift. "'I have come into such good fortune since I saw you last, Miss Havisham,' I murmured, "'and I am so grateful for it, Miss Havisham.' "'Ay, ay,' said she, looking at the discomfited and envious Sarah, with delight. "'I have seen Mr. Jaggers. I have heard about it, Pip. So you go to-morrow?' "'Yes, Miss Havisham. And you are adopted by a rich person?' "'Yes, Miss Havisham. Not named?' "'No, Miss Havisham.' "'And Mr. Jaggers is made your guardian?' "'Yes, Miss Havisham.' She quite gloated on these questions and answers. So keen was her enjoyment of Sarah Pocket's jealous dismay. "'Well,' she went on, "'you have a promising career before you. Be good, deserve it, and abide by Mr. Jaggers' instructions.' She looked at me, and looked at Sarah and Sarah's countenance wrung out of her watchful face a cruel smile. "'Good-bye, Pip. You will always keep the name of Pip, you know?' "'Yes, Miss Havisham. Good-bye, Pip.' She stretched out her hand, and I went down on my knee, and put it to my lips. I had not considered how I should take leave of her. It came naturally to me at the moment to do this. She looked at Sarah Pocket, with triumph in her weird eyes. And so I left my fairy godmother, with both her hands on her crutch-stick, standing in the midst of the dimly-lighted room, beside the rotten bride-cake that was hidden in cobwebs. Sarah Pocket conducted me down, as if I were a ghost who must be seen out. She could not get over my appearance, and was in the last degree confounded. I said, "'Good-bye, Miss Pocket,' but she merely stared, and did not seem collected enough to know that I had spoken. Clear of the house, I made the best of my way back to Pumblechook's, took off my new clothes, made them into a bundle, and went back home in my older dress, carrying it, to speak the truth, much more at my ease, too, though I had the bundle to carry. And now, those six days which were to have run out so slowly, had run out fast, and were gone, and to-morrow looked me in the face more steadily than I could look at it. As the six evenings had dwindled away to five, to four, to three, to two, I had become more and more appreciative of the society of Joe and Biddy. On this last evening I dressed myself out in my new clothes for their delight, and sat in my splendour until bedtime. We had a hot supper on the occasion, graced by the inevitable roast fowl, and we had some flip to finish with. We were all very low and none the higher for pretending to be in spirits. I was to leave our village at five in the morning, carrying my little hand-portmanteau, and I had told Joe that I wished to walk away all alone. I am afraid, so afraid, that this purpose originated in my sense of the contrast there would be between me and Joe if we went to the coach together. 
I had pretended with myself that there was nothing of this taint in the arrangement, but when I went up to my little room on this last night, I felt compelled to admit that it might be so, and had an impulse upon me to go down again and entreat Joe to walk with me in the morning. I did not. All night there were coaches in my broken sleep, going to wrong places instead of to London, and having in the traces now dogs, now cats, now pigs, now men, never horses. Fantastic failures of journeys occupied me until the day dawned, and the birds were singing. Then I got up and partly dressed, and sat at the window to take a last look out, and in taking it fell asleep. Biddy was astir so early to get my breakfast, that although I did not sleep at the window an hour, I smelt the smoke of the kitchen fire when I started up with the terrible idea that it must be late in the afternoon. But long after that, and long after I had heard the clinking of the teacups and was quite ready, I wanted the resolution to go downstairs. After all, I remained up there, repeatedly unlocking and unstrapping my small portmanteau, and locking and strapping it up again, until Biddy called to me that I was late. It was a hurried breakfast, with no taste in it. I got up from the meal, saying with a sort of briskness, as if it had only just occurred to me, "'Well, I suppose I must be off.' And then I kissed my sister, who was laughing and nodding and shaking in her usual chair, and kissed Biddy, and threw my arms around Joe's neck. Then I took up my little portmanteau, and walked out. The last I saw of them was, when I presently heard a scuffle behind me, and looking back, saw Joe throwing an old shoe after me, and Biddy throwing another old shoe. I stopped then, to wave my hat, and dear old Joe waved his strong right arm above his head, crying huskily, "'Hoorah!' and Biddy put her apron to her face. I walked away at a good pace, thinking it was easier to go than I had supposed it would be, and reflecting that it would never have done to have had an old shoe thrown after the coach in sight of all the high street. I whistled and made nothing of going, but the village was very peaceful and quiet, and the light mists were solemnly rising, as if to show me the world, and I had been so innocent and little here, and all beyond was so unknown and great, that in a moment, with a strong heave and sob, I broke into tears. It was by the finger-post at the end of the village, and I laid my hand upon it, and said, "'Good-bye, oh, my dear, dear friend!' Heaven knows, we need never be ashamed of our tears, for they are rain upon the blinding dust of earth, overlying our hard hearts. I was better after I had cried than before, more sorry, more aware of my own ingratitude, more gentle. If I had cried before, I should have had Joe with me then. So subdued I was by those tears, and by their breaking out again in the course of the quiet walk, and when I was on the coach, and it was clear of the town, I deliberated with an aching heart whether I would not get down when we changed horses, and walk back, and have another evening at home, and a better parting. We changed, and I had not made up my mind, and still reflected for my comfort that it would be quite practicable to get down and walk back when we changed again. And while I was occupied with these deliberations, I would fancy an exact resemblance to Joe in some man coming along the road towards us, and my heart would beat high, as if he could possibly be there. We changed again, and yet again, 
and it was now too late and too far to go back, and I went on. And the mists had all solemnly risen now, and the world lay spread before me. This is the end of the first stage of Pip's expectations. End of chapter 19「Chapter Twenty of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty The journey from our town to the metropolis was a journey of about five hours. It was a little past midday when the four-horse stage-coach, by which I was a passenger, got into the ravel of traffic frayed out about the cross-keys, Wood Street, Cheapside, London. We Britons had at that time particularly settled that it was treasonable to doubt our having, and our being the best of everything. Otherwise, while I was scared by the immensity of London, I think I might have had some faint doubts whether it was not rather ugly, crooked, narrow, and dirty. Mr. Jaggers had duly sent me his address. It was Little Britain, and he had written after it on his card, just out of Smithfield, and close by the coach-office. Nevertheless, a hackney coachman who seemed to have as many capes to his greasy greatcoat as he was years old, packed me up in his coach, and hemmed me in with a folding and jingling barrier of steps, as if he were going to take me fifty miles. His getting on his box, which I remember to have been decorated with an old weather-stained pea-green hammer-cloth, moth-eaten into rags, was quite a work of time. It was a wonderful equipage, with six great coronets outside, and ragged things behind, for I don't know how many footmen to hold on to by, and a harrow below them, to prevent amateur footmen from yielding to the temptation. I had scarcely had time to enjoy the coach, and to think how like a straw-yard it was, and yet how like a rag-shop, and to wonder why the horses' nose-bags were kept inside when I observed the coachman beginning to get down, as if we were going to stop presently. And stop presently we did, in a gloomy street, at certain offices with an open door, whereon was painted Mr. Jaggers. "'How much?' I asked the coachman. The coachman answered, "'A shilling, unless you wish to make it more.' I naturally said I had no wish to make it more. "'It must be a shilling,' observed the coachman. I don't want to get into trouble. I know him." He darkly closed an eye at Mr. Jagger's name, and shook his head. When he had got his shilling, and had in course of time completed the ascent to his box, and had got away, which appeared to relieve his mind, I went into the front office with my little portmanteau in my hand, and asked, "'Was Mr. Jagger's at home?' "'He's not,' returned the clerk. "'He's in court at present.' "'Am I addressing Mr. Pip?' I signified that he was addressing Mr. Pip. "'Mr. Jaggers left word would you wait in his room. He couldn't say how long he might be, having a case on, but it stands to reason, his time being valuable, that he won't be longer than he can help.' With those words, the clerk opened a door, and ushered me into an inner chamber at the back. Here we found a gentleman with one eye, in a velveteen suit and knee-breeches, who wiped his nose with his sleeve on being interrupted in the perusal of the newspaper. "'Go wait outside, Mike,' said the clerk, 
I began to say that I hoped I was not interrupting, when the clerk shoved this gentleman out, with as little ceremony as I ever saw used, and tossing his fur cap out after him, left me alone. Mr. Jagger's room was lighted by a skylight only, and was a most dismal place. The skylight, eccentrically pitched like a broken head, and the distorted adjoining houses looking as if they had twisted themselves to peep down at me through it. There were not so many papers about, as I should have expected to see, and there were some odd objects about, that I should not have expected to see, such as an old rusty pistol, a sword and a scabbard, several strange-looking boxes and packages, and two dreadful casts on a shelf, of faces peculiarly swollen and twitchy about the nose. Mr. Jagger's own high-backed chair was of deadly black horsehair, with rows of brass nails round it, like a coffin, and I fancied I could see how he leaned back in it, and bit his forefinger at the client's. The room was but small, and the client's seemed to have had a habit of backing up against the wall, the wall, especially opposite to Mr. Jagger's chair, being greasy with shoulders. I recall, too, that the one-eyed gentleman had shuffled forth against the wall when I was the innocent cause of his being turned out. I sat down in the clientele chair, placed over against Mr. Jaggers's chair, and became fascinated by the dismal atmosphere of the place. I called to mind that the clerk had the same air of knowing something to everybody else's disadvantage as his master had. I wondered how many other clerks there were upstairs and whether they all claimed to have the same detrimental mastery of their fellow-creatures. I wondered what was the history of all the odd litter about the room, and how it came there. I wondered whether the two swollen faces were of Mr. Jaggers's family, and, if he were so unfortunate as to have had a pair of such ill-looking relations, why he stuck them on that dusty perch for the blacks and flies to settle on, instead of giving them a place at home. Of course, I had no experience of a London summer day, and my spirits may have been oppressed by the hot, exhausted air, and by the dust and grit that lay thick on everything. But I sat wondering and waiting in Mr. Jagger's closed room, until I really could not bear the two casts on the shelf above Mr. Jagger's chair, and got up and went out. When I told the clerk that I would take a turn in the air while I waited, he advised me to go around the corner and I should come into Smithfield. So I came into Smithfield, and the shameful place, being all a smear with filth and fat and blood and foam, seemed to stick to me. So I rubbed it off with all possible speed, by turning into a street where I saw the great black dome of St. Paul's bulging at me from behind a grim stone building, which a bystander said was Newgate Prison. Following the wall of the jail, I found the roadway covered with straw, to deaden the noise of passing vehicles, and from this, and from the quantity of people standing about, smelling strongly of spirits and beer, I inferred that the trials were on. While I looked about me here, an exceedingly dirty and partially drunk minister of justice asked me if I would like to step in and hear a trial or so, informing me that he could give me a front place for half a crown whence I should command a full view of the Lord Chief Justice in his wig and robes, mentioning that awful personage like waxwork, and presently offering him at the reduced price of eighteen pence. As I declined the proposal on the plea of an appointment, he was so good as to take me into a yard and show me where the gallows was kept, 
and also where people were publicly whipped, and then he showed me the debtor's door, out of which culprits came to be hanged, heightening the interest of that dreadful portal by giving me to understand that four on him would come out at that door the day after to-morrow, at eight in the morning, to be killed in a row. This was horrible, and gave me a sickening idea of London, the more so as the Lord Chief Justice's proprietor wore, from his hat down to his boots and up again to his pocket-handkerchief, inclusive, mildewed clothes, which had evidently not belonged to him originally, and which, I took it into my head, he had bought cheap of the executioner. Under these circumstances, I thought myself well rid of him for a shilling. I dropped into the office to ask if Mr. Jaggers had come in yet, and I found he had not, and I strolled out again. This time I made the tour of Little Britain, and turned into Bartholomew Close. And now I became aware that other people were waiting about for Mr. Jaggers as well as I. There were two men, of secret appearance, lounging in Bartholomew Close and thoughtfully fitting their feet into the cracks of the pavement as they talked together, one of whom said to the other, when they first passed me, that, "'Jaggers would do it if it was to be done.' There was a knot of three men and two women standing at a corner, and one of the women was crying on her dirty shawl, and the other comforted her by saying, as she pulled her own shawl over her shoulders, "'Jaggers is for him, Melia, and what more could you have?' There was a red-eyed little Jew, who came into the close, while I was loitering there, in company with a second little Jew, whom he sent upon an errand. And while the messenger was gone, I remarked this Jew, who was of a highly excitable temperament, performing a jig of anxiety under a lamp-post, and accompanying himself with a kind of frenzy, with the words, "'Oh, Jaggerth, 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 all othereth, Cagmagerth, give me Jaggerth!' These testimonies to the popularity of my guardian made a deep impression on me, and I admired and wondered more than ever. At length, as I was looking out at the iron gate of Bartholomew Close into Little Britain, I saw Mr. Jaggers coming across the road towards me. All the others who were waiting saw him at the same time, and there was quite a rush at him. Mr. Jaggers, putting a hand on my shoulder, and walking me on at his side without saying anything to me, addressed himself to his followers. First, he took the two secret men. "'Now, I have nothing to say to you,' said Mr. Jaggers, throwing his finger at them. "'I want to know no more than I know. As the result, it's a toss-up. I told you from the first it was a toss-up. Have you paid Wemmick?' "'We made the money up this morning, sir,' said one of the men, submissively, while the other perused Mr. Jaggers' face. I don't ask you when you made it up, or where or whether you made it up at all. Has Wemmick got it? Yes, sir, said both the men together. Very well. Then you may go. Now, I won't have it, said Mr. Jaggers, waving his hand at them to put them behind him. If you say a word to me, I'll throw up the case. We thought, Mr. Jaggers, one of the men began, pulling off his hat, that's what I told you not to do said Mr. Jaggers. "'You thought? I think for you. That's enough for you. If I want you, I know where to find you. I don't want you to find me. Now I won't have it. I won't hear a word.' The two men looked at one another, 
as Mr. Jaggers waved them behind again, and humbly fell back, and were heard no more. "'And now you,' said Mr. Jaggers, suddenly stopping and turning on the two women with the shawls, from whom the three men had meekly separated. "'Oh, Amelia, is it?' "'Yes, Mr. Jaggers.' "'And do you remember,' retorted Mr. Jaggers, "'that but for me you wouldn't be here, and couldn't be here?' "'Oh, yes, sir,' exclaimed both women together. "'Lord bless you, sir. Well, we knows that.' "'Then why,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'do you come here?' "'My bill, sir,' the crying woman pleaded. "'Now, I tell you what,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'once for all, if you don't know that your bill's in good hands, I know it. And if you come here, bothering about your bill, I'll make an example of both your bill and you, and let him slip through my fingers. Have you paid, Wemmick?' "'Oh, yes, sir. Every farden.' "'Very well. Then you have done all you have got to do. Say another word, one single word, and Wemmick shall give you your money back.' This terrible threat caused the two women to fall off immediately. No one remained now but the excitable Jew, who had already raised the skirts of Mr. Jagger's coat to his lips several times. "'I don't know this man,' said Mr. Jaggers, in the same devastating strain. "'What does this fellow want?' "'Ma, there, Mr. Jaggers, home brother to Abraham Lathereth.' "'Who is he?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Let go of my coat.' The suitor, kissing the hem of the garment again, before relinquishing it, replied, "'Abraham Lathereth, on the Pythian of plate.' "'You are too late.' said Mr. Jaggers. I am over the way. Holy Father, Mr. Jaggers, cried my excitable acquaintance, turning white. Don't say you're again Abraham Lathereth. I am, said Mr. Jaggers, and there's an end of it. Get out of the way. Mr. Jaggers, half a moment. My own cousin's gone to Mr. Wemmoth at this present minute, to offer him any terms, Mr. Jaggers. "'Half a quarter of a moment. "'If you'd have the con condescend them "'to be bought off from the t'other hide, "'at any superior price, "'money no object, Mr. Jaggers, Mr. "'My guardian threw his supplicant off "'with supreme indifference, "'and left him dancing on the pavement "'as if it were red-hot. "'Without further interruption, "'we reached the front office, "'where we found the clerk "'and the man in velveteen with the fur cap.' "'Here's Mike,' said the clerk, getting down from his stool, and approaching Mr. Jaggers confidentially. "'Oh?' said Mr. Jaggers, turning to the man, who was pulling a lock of hair in the middle of his forehead, like the bull in Cock Robin, pulling at the bell-rope. "'Your man comes on this afternoon? Well?' "'Well, Master Jaggers,' returned Mike, in the voice of a sufferer from a constitutional cold. Arter a deal of trouble, I found one, sir, as might do. What is he prepared to swear? Well, Master Jaggers, said Mike, wiping his nose on his fur cap this time. In a general way, anything. Mr. Jaggers suddenly became most irate. Now, I warned you before, said he, 
throwing his forefinger at the terrified client, "'that if you ever presumed to talk in that way here, I'd make an example of you. You infernal scoundrel! How dare you tell me that?' The client looked scared, but bewildered, too, as if he were unconscious what he had done. "'Spoony,' said the clerk in a low voice, giving him a stir with his elbow, "'soft head! Need you say it face to face?' "'Now, I ask you, you blundering booby,' said my guardian, very sternly, "'once more, and for the last time, what the man you have brought here is prepared to swear?' Mike looked hard at my guardian, as if he were trying to learn a lesson from his face, and slowly replied, "'Either to character, or to have him been in his company.' and never left him all the night in question. Now be careful. In what station of life is this man? Mike looked at his cap, and looked at the floor, and looked at the ceiling, and looked at the clerk, and even looked at me, before beginning to reply in a nervous manner. We've dressed him up like— When my guardian blustered out, What? "'You will, will you?' "'Spoony,' added the clerk again with another stir. After some helpless casting about, Mike brightened, and began again. "'He is dressed like a spectable pie-man, a sort of a pastry-cook.' "'Is he here?' asked my guardian. "'I left him,' said Mike, "'a setting on some doorsteps round the corner.' "'Take him past that window.' and let me see him." The window indicated was the office window. We all three went to it, behind the wire blind, and presently saw the client go by, in an accidental manner, with a murderous-looking tall individual in a short suit of white linen and a paper cap. This guileless confectioner was not by any means sober, and had a black eye into the green stage of recovery, which was painted over. "'Tell him to take his witness away directly,' said my guardian to the clerk, in extreme disgust, "'and ask him what he means by bringing such a fellow as that.' My guardian then took me into his own room, and while he lunched, standing, from a sandwich-box and a pocket-flask of sherry, he seemed to bully his very sandwich as he ate it, informed me what arrangements he had made for me. I was to go to Barnard's Inn, to young Mr. Pocket's rooms, where a bed had been sent in for my accommodation. I was to remain with young Mr. Pocket until Monday. On Monday I was to go with him to his father's house on a visit, that I might try how I liked it. Also I was told what my allowance was to be. It was a very liberal one, and had handed to me from one of my guardian's drawers. The cards of certain tradesmen with whom I was to deal for all kinds of clothes and such other things as I could in reason want. "'You will find your credit good, Mr. Pip,' said my guardian, whose flask of sherry smelt like a whole caskful, as he hastily refreshed himself. "'But I shall by this means be able to check your bills, and to pull you up if I find you outrunning the constable. Of course you'll go wrong somehow, but that's no fault of mine.' After I had pondered a little over this encouraging sentiment, I asked Mr. Jaggers if I could send for a coach. He said it was not worth while. I was so near my destination. Wemmick 
should walk round with me if I pleased. I then found that Wemmick was the clerk in the next room. Another clerk was rung down from upstairs to take his place, while he was out, and I accompanied him into the street, after shaking hands with my guardian. We found a new set of people lingering outside, but Wemmick made a way among them, by saying coolly, yet decisively, "'I tell you, it's no use. He won't have a word to say to one of you.' And we soon got clear of them, and went on, side by side. End of chapter 20「Casting my eyes on Mr. Wemmick as we went along, to see what he was like in the light of day, I found him to be a dry man, rather short in stature, with a square wooden face, whose expression seemed to have been imperfectly chipped out with a dull-edged chisel. There were some marks in it that might have been dimples, if the material had been softer and the instrument finer, but which, as it was, were only dints. The chisel had made three or four of these attempts at embellishment over his nose, but had given them up without an effort to smooth them off. I judged him to be a bachelor from the frayed condition of his linen, and he appeared to have sustained a good many bereavements, for he wore at least four mourning-rings, besides a brooch representing a lady and a weeping willow at a tomb with an urn on it. I noticed, too, that several rings and seals hung at his watch-chain, as if he were quite laden with remembrances of departed friends. He had glittering eyes, small, keen, and black, and thin, wide, mottled lips. He had had them, to the best of my belief, from forty to fifty years. "'So, you were never in London before,' said Mr. Wemmick to me. "'No,' said I. "'I was new here once,' said Mr. Wemmick. "'Ram to think of it now.' "'You are well acquainted with it now?' "'Why, yes,' said Mr. Wemmick. "'I know the moves of it.' "'Is it a very wicked place?' I asked, more for the sake of saying something than for information. "'You may get cheated, robbed, and murdered in London, but there are plenty of people anywhere who'll do that for you.' "'If there is bad blood between you and them,' said I, to soften it off a little. "'Oh, I don't know about bad blood,' returned Mr. Wemmick. "'There's not much bad blood about. They'll do it if there's anything to be got by it.' "'That makes it worse.' "'You think so?' returned Mr. Wemmick. "'Much about the same, I should say.' He wore his hat on the back of his head, and looked straight before him, walking in a self-contained way, as if there was nothing in the streets to claim his attention. His mouth was such a post-office of a mouth, that he had a mechanical appearance of smiling. We had got to the top of Hoburn Hill, before I knew that it was merely a mechanical appearance, and that he was not smiling at all. "'Do you know where Mr. Matthew Pocket lives?' I asked Mr. Wemmick. "'Yes,' said he, nodding in the direction. "'At Hammersmith, west of London.' "'Is that far?' "'Well, say five miles,' 
Do you know him? Why, you're a regular cross-examiner, said Mr. Wemmick, looking at me with an approving air. Yes, I know him. I know him. There was an air of toleration or depreciation about his utterance of these words that rather depressed me, and I was still looking sideways at his block of a face, in search of any encouraging note to the text, when he said, Here we were, at Barnard's Inn. My depression was not alleviated by the announcement, for I had supposed that establishment to be an hotel, kept by Mr. Barnard, to which the blue boar in our town was a mere public-house, whereas I now found Barnard to be a disembodied spirit, or a fiction, and his inn the dingiest collection of shabby buildings ever squeezed together in a rank corner as a club for tomcats. We entered this haven through a wicked gate and were disgorged by an introductory passage into a melancholy little square that looked to me like a flat burying-ground. I thought it had the most dismal trees in it, and the most dismal sparrows, and the most dismal cats, and the most dismal houses, in number half a dozen or so, that I had ever seen. I thought the windows of the sets of chambers into which those houses were divided were in every stage of dilapidated blind and curtain crippled flower-pot, cracked glass, dusty decay, and miserable makeshift, while to let, to let, to let, glared at me from empty rooms, as if no new wretches ever came there, and the vengeance of the soul of Barnard were being slowly appeased by the gradual suicide of the present occupants, and their unholy interment under the gravel. A frowsy morning of soot and smoke, attire this forlorn creation of Barnard, and it had strewn ashes on its head, and was undergoing penance and humiliation as a mere dust-hole. Thus far my sense of sight, while dry rot and wet rot and all the silent rots that rot in neglected roof and cellar, rot of rat and mouse and bug and coaching stables near at hand besides, addressed themselves faintly to my sense of smell, and moaned, "'Try Barnard's mixture.' So imperfect was this realisation of the first of my great expectations, that I looked in dismay at Mr. Wemmick. "'Ah!' said he, mistaking me. "'The retirement reminds you of the country. So it does me.' He led me into a corner, and conducted me up a flight of stairs, which appeared to me to be slowly collapsing into sawdust, so that one of those days the upper lodgers would look out at their doors and find themselves without the means of coming down, to a set of chambers on the top floor. Mr. Pocket Jun was painted on the door, and there was a label on the letter-box, Return shortly. "'He hardly thought you'd come so soon,' Mr. Wemmick explained. "'You don't want me any more.' "'No, thank you,' said I. "'As I keep the cash,' Mr. Wemmick observed, we shall most likely meet pretty often. Good day. Good day. I put out my hand, and Mr. Wemmick at first looked at it as if he thought I wanted something. Then he looked at me and said, correcting himself, Oh, to be sure, yes. You're in the habit of shaking hands. I was rather confused, thinking it must be out of the London fashion, but said yes. I've got so out of it said Mr. Wemmick, except at last, 
"'Very glad, I'm sure, to make your acquaintance. Good day.' When we had shaken hands and he was gone, I opened the staircase window, and had nearly beheaded myself, for the lines had rotted away, and it came down like the guillotine. Happily, it was so quick that I had not put my head out. After this escape, I was content to take a foggy view of the inn through the windows encrusting dirt, and to stand dolefully looking out, saying to myself that London was decidedly overrated. Mr. Pocket Junior's idea of shortly was not mine, for I had nearly maddened myself with looking out for half an hour, and had written my name with my finger several times in the dirt of every pane in the window, before I heard footsteps on the stairs. Gradually there rose before me the hat, head, neckcloth, waistcoat, trousers, boots, of a member of society of about my own standing. He had a paper bag under each arm, and a pottle of strawberries in one hand, and was out of breath. Ah, Mr. Pip, said he. Mr. Pocket, said I. Dear me, he exclaimed, I am extremely sorry, but I knew there was a coach from your part of the country at midday. I thought you would come by that one. The fact is, I've been out on your account, not that that is any excuse, or I thought, coming from the country, you might like a little fruit after dinner, and I went to Covent Garden Market to get it good. For a reason that I had, I felt as if my eyes would start out of my head. I acknowledged his attention incoherently, and began to think this was a dream. "'Dear me,' said Mr. Pocket, Jr., "'this door sticks so.' As he was fast making jam of his fruit by wrestling with the door, while the paper bags were under his arms, I begged him to allow me to hold them. He relinquished them with an agreeable smile, and combated with the door as if it were a wild beast. It yielded so suddenly at last that he staggered upon me, and I staggered back upon the opposite door, and we both laughed. But still I felt as if my eyes must start out of my head, and as if this must be a dream. "'Pray come in,' said Mr. Pocket, Jr. "'Allow me to lead the way. I'm rather bare here, but I hope you'll be able to make out tolerably well till Monday. My father thought you would get on more agreeably through to tomorrow with me than with him, and might like to take a walk about London. I'm sure I shall be very happy to show London to you. As to our table, you won't find that bad, I hope, for it will be supplied from our coffee-house here, and it is only right, I should add, at your expense.' such being Mr. Jagger's directions. As to our lodging, it's not by any means splendid, because I have my own bread to earn, and my father hasn't anything to give me, and I shouldn't be willing to take it if he had. This is our sitting-room, just such chairs and tables and carpet and so forth, you see, as they could spare from home. You mustn't give me credit for the tablecloth and spoons and casters, because they come for you from the coffee-house. This is my little bedroom, rather musty, but Barnard's is musty. This is your bedroom. The furniture's hired for the occasion, but I trust it will answer the purpose. If you should want anything, I'll go and fetch it. The chambers are retired, and we shall be alone together, but we shan't fight, I dare say. But, dear me, I beg your pardon. You're holding the fruit all this time. Pray, let me take these bags from you. I'm quite ashamed. As I stood opposite to Mr. Pocket, Jr., delivering him the bags, one, two, I saw the starting appearance come into his own eyes that I knew to be in mine, and he said, falling back, 
"'Lord, bless me! You're the prowling boy!' "'And you,' said I, "'are the pale young gentleman.'" End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 22 The pale young gentleman and I stood contemplating one another in Barnard's Inn, until we both burst out laughing. "'The idea of its being you!' said he. "'The idea of its being you!' said I. And then we contemplated one another afresh, and laughed again. "'Well,' said the pale young gentleman, reaching out his hand good-humouredly, "'it's all over now, I hope, and it will be magnanimous in you if you'll forgive me for having knocked you about so.' I derived from this speech that Mr. Herbert Pocket, for Herbert was the pale young gentleman's name, still rather confounded his intention with his execution. But I made a modest reply, and we shook hands warmly. "'You hadn't come into your good fortune at that time,' said Herbert Pocket. "'No,' said I. "'No,' he acquiesced. "'I heard it had happened very lately. I was rather on the lookout for good fortune, then.' "'Indeed?' "'Yes. Miss Havisham has sent for me, to see if she could take a fancy to me. But she couldn't. At all events, she didn't.' I thought it polite to remark that I was surprised to hear that. "'Bad taste,' said Herbert, laughing. "'But a fact. Yes, she had sent for me on a trial visit, and if I had come out of it successfully, I suppose I should have been provided for. Perhaps I should have been what you may call it to a Stella.' "'What's that?' I asked with sudden gravity. He was arranging his fruit and plates while we talked, which divided his attention, and was the cause of his having made this lapse of a word. A fianced, he explained, still busy with the fruit. Betrothed, engaged, what's his name? Any word of that sort. How did you bear your disappointment? I asked. Pooh, said he. I didn't care much for it. She's a tartar. Miss Havisham? Oh, don't say no to that, but I meant Estella. That girl's hard and haughty and capricious to the last degree, and has been brought up by Miss Havisham to wreak revenge on all the male sex. What relation is she to Miss Havisham? None, said he. Only adopted. Why should she wreak vengeance on all the male sex? What revenge? Lord, Mr. Pip, said he, don't you know? No, said I. Dear me, it's quite a story and shall be saved till dinner-time. And now, let me take the liberty of asking you a question. How did you come there that day?" I told him, and he was attentive until I had finished, and then burst out laughing again, and asked me if I was sore afterwards. I didn't ask him if he was, for my conviction on that point was perfectly established. "'Mr. Jaggers is your guardian, I understand,' he went on. Yes. You know, he is Miss Havisham's man of business and solicitor, and has her confidence when nobody else has. This was bringing me, I felt, towards dangerous ground. 
I answered with a constraint I made no attempt to disguise, that I had seen Mr. Jaggers in Miss Havisham's house on the very day of our combat, but never at any other time, and that I believed he had no recollection of having ever seen me there. He was so obliging as to suggest my father for your tutor, and he called on my father to propose it. Of course he knew about my father from his connection with Miss Havisham. My father is Miss Havisham's cousin. Not that that implies familiar intercourse between them, for he is a bad courtier, and will not propitiate her." Herbert Pocket had a frank and easy way with him that was very taking. I had never seen any one then, and I have never seen any one since, who more strongly expressed to me, in every look and tone, a natural incapacity to do anything secret and mean. There was something wonderfully hopeful about his general air and something that at the same time whispered to me he would never be very successful or rich. I don't know how this was. I became imbued with the notion on that first occasion before we sat down to dinner, but I cannot define by what means. He was still a pale young gentleman, and had a certain conquered languor about him in the midst of his spirits and briskness that did not seem indicative of natural strength. He had not a handsome face, but it was better than handsome, being extremely amiable and cheerful. His figure was a little ungainly, as in the days when my knuckles had taken such liberties with it, but it looked as if it would always be light and young. Whether Mr. Trabb's local work would have sat more gracefully on him than on me may be a question, but I am conscious that he carried off his rather old clothes much better than I carried off my new suit. As he was so communicative, I felt that reserve on my part would be a bad return, unsuited to our years. I therefore told him my small story, and laid stress on my being forbidden to inquire who my benefactor was. I further mentioned that as I had been brought up a blacksmith in a country place, and knew very little of the ways of politeness, I would take it as a great kindness in him, if he would give me a hint, whenever he saw me at a loss, or going wrong. "'With pleasure!' said he, though I venture to prophesy that you'll want very few hints. I dare say we shall be often together, and I should like to banish any needless restraint between us. Will you do me the favour, to begin at once, to call me by my Christian name, Herbert?" I thanked him, and said I would. I informed him in exchange that my Christian name was Philip. "'I don't take to Philip,' said he, smiling for it sounds like a moral boy out of the spelling-book, who was so lazy that he fell into a pond, or so fat that he couldn't see out of his eyes, or so avaricious that he locked up his cake till the mice ate it, or so determined to go a bird's nesting that he got himself eaten by bears, who lived handy in the neighbourhood. I tell you what I should like. We are so harmonious, and you have been a blacksmith. Would you mind it? "'I shouldn't mind anything that you propose,' I answered, "'but I don't understand you. "'Would you mind Handel for a familiar name? "'There's a charming piece of music by Handel called The Harmonious Blacksmith.' "'I should like it very much.' "'Then, my dear Handel,' said he, turning round as the door opened, "'here is the dinner, and I must beg of you to take the top of the table, "'because the dinner is of your providing.' This I would not hear of, so he took the top, and I faced him. 
It was a nice little dinner. Seemed to be then a very Lord Mayor's feast, and it acquired additional relish from being eaten under those independent circumstances, with no old people by, and with London all around us. This again was heightened by a certain gypsy character that set the banquet off, for while the table was, as Mr. Pumblechook might have said, the lap of luxury, being entirely furnished forth from the coffee-house, the circumjacent region of sitting-room was of a comparatively pastureless and shifty character, imposing on the waiter the wandering habits of putting the covers on the floor, where he fell over them, the melted butter in the armchair, the bread on the bookshelves, the cheese in the coal-scuttle, and the boiled fowl into my bed in the next room, where I found much of its parsley and butter in a state of congelation when I retired for the night. All this made the feast delightful, and when the waiter was not there to watch me, my pleasure was without alloy. We had made some progress in the dinner, when I reminded Herbert of his promise to tell me about Miss Havisham. True, he replied. I'll redeem it at once. Let me introduce the topic, Handel, by mentioning that in London it is not the custom to put the knife in the mouth, for fear of accidents, and that while the fork is reserved for that use, it is not put further in than necessary. It is scarcely worth mentioning, only it's as well to do as other people do. Also, the spoon is not generally used overhand, but under. This has two advantages. You get at your mouth better, which after all is the object, and you save a good deal of the attitude of opening oysters on the part of the right elbow." He offered these friendly suggestions in such a lively way, that we both laughed, and I scarcely blushed. "'Now,' he pursued, "'concerning Miss Havisham. Miss Havisham, you must know, was a spoilt child. Her mother died when she was a baby, and her father denied her nothing. Her father was a country gentleman, down in your part of the world, and was a brewer. I don't know why it should be a crack thing to be a brewer, but it is indisputable that while you cannot possibly be genteel and bake, you may be as genteel as never was and brew. You see it every day. Yet a gentleman may not keep a public house, me," said I. Not on any account, returned Herbert. But a public house may keep a gentleman. Well, Mr. Havisham was very rich and very proud. So was his daughter. Miss Havisham was an only child. I hazarded. Stop a moment. I'm coming to that. No, she was not an only child. She had a half-brother. Her father privately married again. His cook, I rather think. I thought he was proud, said I. My good Handel, so he was. He married his second wife privately, because he was proud, and in course of time she died. When she was dead, I apprehend he first told his daughter what he had done, and then the son became a part of the family, residing in the house you are acquainted with. As the son grew a young man, he turned out riotous, extravagant, and undutiful, altogether bad. At last his father disinherited him, but he softened when he was dying, and left him well off, though not nearly so well off as Miss Havisham. Take another glass of wine and excuse my mentioning that society, as a body, does not expect one to be so strictly conscientious in emptying one's glass as to turn it bottom upwards with the rim on one's nose." I had been doing this, in an excess of attention to his recital. I thanked him, and apologised. He said, "'Not at all,' and resumed. 
Miss Havisham was now an heiress, and you may suppose was looked after as a great match. Her half-brother had now ample means again, but what with debts and what with new madness wasted them most fearfully again. There were strong differences between him and her, than there had been between him and his father, and it is suspected that he cherished a deep and mortal grudge against her, as having influenced the father's anger. Now I come to the cruel part of the story, merely breaking off, my dear Handel, to remark that a dinner napkin will not go into a tumbler. Why I was trying to pack mine into my tumbler, I am wholly unable to say. I only know that I found myself, with a perseverance worthy of a much better cause, making the most strenuous exertions to compress it within those limits. Again I thanked him, and apologised, and again he said in the cheerfullest manner, "'Not at all, I am sure,' and resumed. There appeared upon the scene, say at the races, or the public balls, or anywhere else you like, a certain man, who made love to Miss Havisham. I never saw him, for this happened five and twenty years ago, before you and I were, Handel. But I have heard my father mention that he was a showy man, and the kind of man for the purpose, but that he was not to be, without ignorance or prejudice, mistaken for a gentleman. My father most strongly asseverates, because it is a principle of his, that no man who is not a true gentleman at heart ever was, since the world began, a true gentleman in manner. He says, no varnish can hide the grain of the wood, and that the more varnish you put on, the more the grain will express itself. Well, this man pursued Miss Havisham closely, and professed to be devoted to her. I believe she had not shown much susceptibility up to that time, but all the susceptibility she possessed certainly came out then, and she passionately loved him. There is no doubt that she perfectly idolized him. He practised on her affection in that systematic way, that he got great sums of money from her, and he induced her to buy her brother out of a share in the brewery, which had been weakly left to him by his father, at an immense price, on the plea that, when he was her husband, he must hold and manage it all. Your guardian was not at that time in Miss Havisham's counsels, and she was too haughty and too much in love to be advised by any one. Her relations were poor and scheming, with the exception of my father. He was poor enough, but not time-serving or jealous. The only independent one among them. He warned her that she was doing too much for this man, and was placing herself too unreservedly in his power. She took the first opportunity of angrily ordering my father out of the house, in his presence, and my father has never seen her since. I thought of her having said, Matthew will come and see me at last, when I am laid dead upon that table. And I asked Herbert whether his father was so inveterate against her. It's not that, said he, but she charged him, in the presence of her intended husband, with being disappointed in the hope of fawning upon her for his own advancement. And if he were to go to her now, it would look true, even to him, and even to her, to return to the man and make an end of him. The marriage day was fixed, the wedding dresses were bought, the wedding tour was planned out, the wedding guests were invited, the day came, but not the bridegroom. He wrote her a letter, which she received, I struck in, when she was dressing for her marriage, at twenty minutes to nine. "'At the hour and a minute,' said Herbert, nodding, 
at which he afterwards stopped all the clocks. What was in it? Further than that it most heartlessly broke the marriage off, I can't tell you, because I don't know. When she recovered from a bad illness that she had, she laid the whole place waste, as you have seen it, and she has never since looked upon the light of day. "'Is that all a story?' I asked, after considering it. "'All I know of it, and indeed I only know so much, through piecing it out for myself, for my father always avoids it, and, even when Miss Havisham invited me to go there, told me no more of it than it was absolutely requisite I should understand. But I have forgotten one thing. It has been supposed that the man to whom she gave her misplaced confidence acted throughout in concert with her half-brother, that it was a conspiracy between them, and that they shared the profits. "'I wonder he didn't marry her and get all the property,' said I. "'He may have been married already, and her cruel mortification may have been a part of her half-brother's scheme.' said Herbert. Mind, I don't know that. What became of the two men? I asked, after again considering the subject. They fell into deeper shame and degradation, if there can be deeper, and ruin. Are they alive now? I don't know. You said just now that Estella was not related to Miss Havisham, but adopted. When adopted? Herbert shrugged his shoulders. There's always been an Estella since I've heard of Miss Havisham. I know no more. And now, Handel, said he, finally throwing off the story, as it were, there is a perfectly open understanding between us. All that I know about Miss Havisham, you know. And all that I know, I retorted, you know. I fully believe it. So there can be no competition or perplexity between you and me. And as to the condition on which you hold your advancement in life, namely, that you are not to inquire or discuss to whom you owe it, you may be very sure that it will never be encroached upon, or even approached, by me, or by any one belonging to me." In truth, he said this with so much delicacy, that I felt the subject done with, even though I should be under his father's roof for years and years to come. Yet he said it with so much meaning, too, that I felt he has perfectly understood Miss Havisham to be my benefactress as I understood the fact myself. It had not occurred to me before that he had led up to the theme for the purpose of clearing it out of our way, but we were so much the lighter and easier for having broached it, that I now perceived this to be the case. We were very gay and sociable, and I asked him in the course of conversation what he was. He replied, "'A capitalist, an insurer of ships.' I suppose he saw me glancing about the room in search of some tokens of shipping, or capital, for he added, "'In the city.' I had grand ideas of the wealth and importance of insurers of ships in the city, and I began to think with awe of having laid a young insurer on his back, blackened his enterprising eye, and cut his responsible head open. But again there came upon me, for my relief, that odd impression that Herbert Pocket would never be very successful or rich. I shall not rest satisfied with merely employing my capital in insuring ships. I shall buy up some good life-assurance shares, and cut into the direction. I shall also do a little in the mining way. None of these things will interfere with my chartering a few thousand tons on my own account. I think I shall trade," said he, leaning back in his chair, to the East Indies 
for silks, shawls, spices, dyes, drugs, and precious woods. It's an interesting trade. And the profits are large, said I. Tremendous, said he. I wavered again, and began to think here were greater expectations than my own. I think I shall trade also, said he, putting his thumbs in his waistcoat pockets, to the West Indies, for sugar, tobacco, and rum, also to Ceylon, especially for elephants' tusks. You will want a good many ships, said I. A perfect fleet, said he. Quite overpowered by the magnificence of these transactions, I asked him where the ships he insured mostly traded to at present. "'I haven't begun insuring yet,' he replied. "'I'm looking about me.' Somehow that pursuit seemed more in keeping with Barnard's Inn. I said, in a tone of conviction, "'Ah!' "'Yes, I'm in a counting-house and looking about me.' "'Is a counting-house profitable?' I asked. "'To—do you mean to the young fellow who's in it?' he asked, in reply. "'Yes, to you.' "'Why, no, uh, not to me,' he said, with the air of one carefully reckoning up and striking a balance. "'Not directly profitable. That is, it doesn't pay me anything, and I have to uh, keep myself.' This certainly had not a profitable appearance, and I shook my head as if I would imply that it would be difficult to lay by much accumulative capital from such a source of income. "'But the thing is,' said Herbert Pocket, "'that you look about you. That's a grand thing. You're in a counting-house, you know, and you look about you.' It struck me as a singular implication that you couldn't be out of a counting-house, you know, and look about you but I silently deferred to his experience. "'Then the time comes,' said Herbert, "'when you see your opening, and you go in, and you swoop upon it, and you make your capital, and then there you are. When you've once made your capital, you have nothing to do but employ it.' This was very like his way of conducting that encounter in the garden. Very like. His manner of bearing his poverty, too, exactly corresponded to his manner of bearing that defeat. It seemed to me that he took all blows and buffets now, with just the same air as he had taken mine then. It was evident that he had nothing around him but the simplest necessaries, for everything that I remarked upon turned out to have been sent in on my account from the coffee-house or somewhere else. Yet, having already made his fortune in his own mind, he was so unassuming with it that I felt quite grateful to him for not being puffed up. It was a pleasant addition to his naturally pleasant ways, and we got on famously. In the evening we went out for a walk in the streets, and went half-price to the theatre, and next day we went to church at Westminster Abbey, and in the afternoon we walked in the parks, and I wondered who shod all the horses there, and wished Joe did. On a moderate computation, it was many months that Sunday since I had left Joe and Biddy, the space interposed between myself and them, partook of that expansion, and our marshes were any distance off. That I could have been at our old church in my old church-going clothes on the very last Sunday that ever was, seemed a combination of impossibilities, geographical and social, solar and lunar. Yet, in the London streets, 
so crowded with people, and so brilliantly lighted in the dusk of evening, there were depressing hints of reproaches, for that I had put the poor old kitchen at home so far away. And in the dead of night, the footsteps of some incapable impostor of a porter, mooning about Barnard's Inn, under pretence of watching it, fell hollow on my heart. On the Monday morning, at a quarter before nine, Herbert went to the counting-house to report himself, to look about him, too, I suppose, and I bore him company. He was to come away in an hour or two to attend me to Hammersmith, and I was to await about for him. It appeared to me that the eggs from which young insurers were hatched were incubated in dust and heat, like the eggs of ostriches, judging from the places to which those incipient giants repaired on a Monday morning. Nor did the counting-house where Herbert assisted show in my eyes as at all a good observatory, being a back second floor up a yard, of a grimy presence in all particulars, and with a look into another back second floor, rather than a lookout. I waited about until it was noon, and I went upon change, and I saw fluey men sitting there under the bills about shipping, whom I took to be great merchants, though I couldn't understand why they should be all out of spirits. When Herbert came, we went and had lunch at a celebrated house, which I then quite venerated, but now believed to have been the most abject superstition in Europe, and where I could not help noticing even then, that there was much more gravy on the tablecloths, and knives, and waiters' clothes, than in the steaks. This collation, disposed of at a moderate price, considering the grease which was not charged for, we went back to Barnard's Inn, and got my little portmanteau, and then took coach for Hammersmith. We arrived there at two or three o'clock in the afternoon, and had very little way to walk to Mr. Pocket's house. Lifting the latch of a gate, we passed direct into a little garden overlooking the river, where Mr. Pocket's children were playing about. And unless I deceive myself, on a point where my interests or prepossessions are certainly not concerned, I saw that Mr. and Mrs. Pocket's children were not growing up, or being brought up, but were tumbling up. Mrs. Pocket was sitting on a garden-chair under a tree, reading, with her legs upon another garden-chair, and Mrs. Pocket's two nursemaids were looking about them while the children played. Mamma, said Herbert, "'this is young Mr. Pip,' upon which Mrs. Pocket received me with an appearance of amiable dignity. "'Master Alec, and Miss Jane,' cried one of the nurses to two of the children, if you go a-bouncing up against them bushes, you'll fall over in the river and be drownded, and what'll your pa say then?" At the same time, this nurse picked up Mrs. Pocket's handkerchief, and said, "'If that don't make six times, you've dropped it, Mum!' Upon which Mrs. Pocket laughed, and said, "'Thank you, Flopson,' and settling herself in one chair, only, resumed her book. Her countenance immediately assumed a knitted and intent expression, as if she had been reading for a week but before she could have read half a dozen lines, she fixed her eyes upon me, and said, "'I hope your mamma is quite well.' This unexpected inquiry put me into such a difficulty, that I began saying in the absurdest way, that if there had been any such person, I had no doubt she would have been quite well, and would have been very much obliged, and would have sent her compliments, when the nurse came to my rescue. "'Well!' she cried picking up the pocket-handkerchief. "'If that don't make seven times, what are you a-doing of this afternoon, mum?' Mrs. Pocket received her property, 
at first with a look of unutterable surprise, as if she had never seen it before, and then with a laugh of recognition, and said, "'Thank you, Flopson,' and forgot me, and went on reading. I found, now I had leisure to count them, that there were no fewer than six little pockets present, in various stages of tumbling up. I had scarcely arrived at the total, when a seventh was heard, as in the region of air, wailing dolefully. "'If there ain't baby,' said Flopson, appearing to think it most surprising, "'make haste up, Millers!' Millers, who was the other nurse, retired into the house, and by degrees the child's wailing was hushed and stopped, as if it were a young ventriloquist with something in its mouth. Mrs. Pocket read all the time. I was curious to know what the book could be. We were waiting, I suppose, for Mr. Pocket to come out to us. At any rate, we waited there, and so I had an opportunity of observing the remarkable family phenomenon that whenever any of the children strayed near Mrs. Pocket in their play, they always tripped themselves up and tumbled over her, always very much to her momentary astonishment, and their own more enduring lamentation. I was at a loss to account for this surprising circumstance, and could not help giving my mind to speculations about it, until by and by Millers came down with the baby, which baby was handed to Flopson, which Flopson was handing it to Mrs. Pocket, when she too went fairly head-foremost over Mrs. Pocket, baby and all, and was caught by Herbert and myself. "'Gracious me, Flopson,' said Mrs. Pocket, looking off her book for a moment, "'everybody's tumbling.' "'Gracious you indeed, Mum,' returned Flopson, very red in the face. "'What have you got there?' "'I got here, Flopson.' asked Mrs. Pocket. "'Why, if it ain't your footstool!' cried Flopson. "'And if you keep it under your skirts like that, who's to help tumbling? Here, take the baby, Mum, and give me your book.' Mrs. Pocket acted on the advice, and inexpertly danced the infant a little in her lap, while the other children played about it. This had lasted but a very short time, when Mrs. Pocket issued summary orders that they were all to be taken into the house for a nap. Thus I made the second discovery, on that first occasion, that the nurture of the little pockets consisted of alternately tumbling up and lying down. Under these circumstances, when Flopson and Millers had got the children into the house, like a little flock of sheep, and Mr. Pocket came out of it to make my acquaintance, I was not much surprised to find that Mr. Pocket was a gentleman with a rather perplexed expression of face, and with his very grey hair, disordered on his head, as if he didn't quite see his way to putting anything straight. End of chapter 22 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. 
but nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.